It's been a long time. I don't think we've recorded for over a month now. Yeah, it's been some. It's been a while, and uh, so let, so Moeen has been. He's. It's, this podcast is actually one of. I, I don't know if it's his idea or my idea, uh, but the idea of the podcast was to sit with a common person and talk about matters that are on their mind with somebody who knows a little bit about you know topics of Dean. So that was the idea, and Moeen is that type he represents that common man he's an it guy right so uh it, but from the dini side he doesn't get in the weeds of theology of law he's concerned muslim but that's it that's our audience too so moeen actually represents our audience that type of person who works but is smart it's just not a professional in the dean per se sure right we have now uh uh within like a week or two he came up with this brilliant idea to invite uh, Alex, Alex Lahos, who also goes by Elias, is a lawyer by training and uh, like a voracious reader. He does not represent the common man, right? <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or any man. He, 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 you could say, you could say, <laughs> or in his own words, he doesn't even represent the Savina Society podcast, right? In his takes. <laughs> Although he does, right? He does. And I'm happy to. Uh, to have him and, and all his takes as well. But he, uh, what Ilyas uh, does is he re really reads everything. He's like me, uh, uh, Maliki and Fiqh and in, in Dean in general. And he's, uh, but he's a voracious reader and has basically something intelligent to say. A lot of people have something to say, right? But not everyone has something intelligent to say or sure. based on some statistic or some fact. Right. So when my kids need to know a word, they always say, could you call up your friend who knows everything? Right. And that's <laughs> referring to Alex. Right. So <laughs> meanings of words, stuff like that. Now we have we go. We have another brother named Sad, who also represents the common man. But he couldn't be with us because I don't like to have more than five people on the episode. It gets hard for the listener. Then we have Nas. All right. Nas is a brother who basically is, he's an IT guy. <laughs> But he's one of those really, really smart in theology and philosophy. He loves falsafa, so you and him will get along. And uh, he jumped at the chance to be on this podcast because he's he really loves philosophy and studying philosophy. And that, uh, uh, you know, is right up your alley. And I'm, I'm sure you're going to have a lot to say. Now, your name is pronounced, last name is pronounced Sortsis? That, that would do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can pronounce it correctly. I mean, if you, if you tell me what's the, what's the right way to do it. Yeah, no, it, uh, yeah, look, man, there's ikhtilaf from the issue. <laughs> I'm not going to teach you the tajweed of Greek right now. It's gonna take <laughs> but basically, yeah. basically, you put the T and the Z together quite fast. So it's like, zodzis. So, oh, okay. That, that does take tajweed lessons. You know what's very interesting, Chef? Yeah. The whole pronunciation of language is actually a proof of the Islamic concept of mutawatir. Yeah. And yeah, the mutawatirat. Yeah. The reason mm -hmm. being is because the way we pronounce, for example, the word love. How do we know when we see love, the letters and the word love, that we don't pronounce it love e or love? Yeah. yeah. The reason being because it's a living oral tradition on how to pronounce words. Now you may think, oh, but you can go to a dictionary or 
a dictionary that tells you how to pronounce, but that doesn't mean anything. That's just a reflection of the oral tradition. Right. And this is yeah. mutawatir. And what's very interesting, someone may say, yeah, but, you know, language changes over time. But with, with regards to the Quran, we have tajweed that has preserved the pronunciation. Mm. So when an atheist or someone who's a skeptic wants to really understand, you know, why does the oral tradition take primacy in the preservation of the Quran? Well, here's, an, here's a living example. It's every single language. So logically speaking, to reject the oral mutawatir tradition of the Quran is logically equivalent of rejecting any no living language. True. Totally true. Yeah. And even Arabic grammar, when people say, why are there so many exceptions? Uh, I really recently discovered the correct answer to that is that the grammarians were not writing and putting together a structure for students to study. They were merely reflecting and trying to make sense of how it's already spoken. Yeah. Right. And so they said, well, why did the Arabs not want to pronounce the kasra on this word, right? It's because it didn't come out easily. So they just skipped it because language has to come out easily. Otherwise, it defeats its purpose. It's ease in reflecting meaning rather than uh, coming up with a theory that is symmetrical on a text in a textbook. Right? Mm, mm, mm. So it doesn't matter if it's difficult for the student. Language is meant for the speaker to transmit his ideas with ease not for yep. the listener alex it's like, it's, like, it's like the way that there's tamar buta in english even though yeah. nobody no no linguist recognizes it or writes about it and you're not going to find it in a grammar textbook or a book on spelling and pronunciation but it exists which is if, what if a if a word ends with a vowel and then a t yeah it's tamar buta in english yeah nobody <laughs> says cat you don't put your tongue against your teeth that's true and exhale that's true. you yeah. say it in the back of your throat cat yeah that's true tamar buta yeah. Ah. <laughs> yeah. And it's the pronunciation of the Hamza, too. Yeah. Right. All right. Good. Here we go. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome to the Safina Society podcast in an episode that I, I've been looking forward to and our team's been looking forward to for about a month since we scheduled this. Uh, and that is an episode today. We have our guest, Hamza Zortzis. I'm trying to pronounce it properly, uh, uh, but people usually say Zortzis, but it's Zortzis for everyone who knows Greek. But <laughs> this uh, episode is something we've, it's really up our alley because we're really a type of Kalami type of podcast in that we want to look at issues that are coming up in our uh, present day and sort of deconstruct them in common man's language and put forth what the book and the sunnah and our uh, Islamic heritage, what we call at-turath, al-ilmi, uh, the heritage of knowledge puts forth. So with that, let's go over to uh, Mu'in with our introductions and a word from our affiliate. Uh, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, everyone. Uh, so a word from our affiliate, we want to give a shout out to our affiliate Mecca Books at meccabooks.com. That's Mecca with two C's, M-E-C-C-A-B-O-O-K-S.com. Right now, they have a discount for one of their latest releases, An Introduction to Islamic Theology by Imam Nuruddin al-Sabuni. So you don't want to miss out on that book. It's a great book. It's a great resource of Aqidah uh, on Ahlul Sunnah as well. And without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce our very special guest. I mean, he doesn't need really need much of an introduction, but uh, as I've spent a, a great deal of my time listening to his videos in the past. I've learned so much about him. And we have him on our show today, Brother Hamza 
Tortsis. I'm definitely butchering his name. He, he gave us a little uh, Tajweed lesson on Greek right before this episode, but I still uh, uh, can't pronounce his name properly. Alhamdulillah. Uh, brother uh, Hamza has a master's and postgraduate certificate in philosophy from the University of London. He's currently continuing his postgraduate studies in the field, and Brother Hamza has debated prominent academics and thinkers on Islam and atheism. His interlocutors have included Professor Lawrence Krauss, Professor Peter Simmons, Dan Barker, and Professor Simon Blackburn. He has over a decade of experience in articulating a compassionate and rational case for Islam. He is also a trained boxer and Wing Chun Kung Fu practitioner, which maybe I can ask him later about. Uh, but I'd also like to say that, you know, I, we have his book here. I don't think you can see it on camera, but it's called The Divine Reality. I think Zoom kind of just takes out everything in the background. Mm -hmm. his, his, it's a great book. I, I reference it often. It's called The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. Uh, it's a great resource. I know <laughs> Dr. Shadi and, and Nazmo re reference it all, all the time as well. Uh, so without further ado, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome, Brother Hamza. We are also joined by uh, Nazmul and uh, uh, Elias, the host, and Dr. Shadi today on, on today's episode. Back to you, Dr. Shadi. So, uh, so Hamza, welcome to our program and uh, tell us about yourself. When did you exactly start, you know, debating these, these big names in philosophy, in science, and evolutionists and these neo uh, you know, uh, new atheists and Darwinists? Wh when did that start to happen with you? And like, how do you approach them? How, does those, how do those debates come about exactly? That's a good question. I mean, firstly, exactly here for the opportunity for mm -hmm. having me on your podcast. May Allah bless you all. Amen. Um, how did it start? Well, in the beginning, I used to have discussions around liberalism, freedom of speech. Some of those videos are still online. They're very grainy. And it was like, I think 2006, 2007, 2008, I had a discussion, a debate with the founder of the British UKIP party. His name is Alan Sked on liberalism. I had a debate with, I forgot his name now, on freedom of speech. And I was discussing those kind of social, political, philosophical ideas. But then I realized that there was a huge, huge challenge coming, which was as a result of some of the fiction books from the neo atheists, right? I don't call them non-fiction. I call them fiction books, right? Mm. Because they lie about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So yeah. by virtue of that, they're, <laughs> they're fiction books. So The God Delusion, which is a fiction book, when that came out, after that, there was a bit of a kind of movement going on because the nature of movements is that they have leaders. And if you study the sociology of movements, they also have a repertoire of different activities that are linked to a kind of overall worldview if you like or a bunch of assertions so you have this kind of doctrine worldview assertions and you have these leaders and then you have a repertoire of different activities that they'll do lectures conferences podcasts books etc so it was a growing movement and i felt you know maybe i have the skills to respond well that's what i thought at the time but looking back now you know it's been a journey because obviously in the beginning i I, I was just basically reading Christian philosophical books because I wasn't in touch with our tradition properly. In actual fact, it was almost like cut and paste. So I, I've, been, I've been on a journey, obviously. I've learned from many mistakes that I've made for sure. And you have to realize the time I was doing this, you know, YouTube and Facebook was starting to get more popular. We didn't have 
online connected communities that much, especially in the UK. You didn't really have connected communities from a scholarly perspective that you could sit and ask someone certain questions. This was before 2010. So that obviously was a context that affected me to the degree where I just had to pick things from places where I thought it just sounded right, right? Mm. And because I got a bit of a big bit of a big mouth, and because mm-hmm. if I love something, I'm going to share it. Like you know, I used to love Wing Chun Kung Fu, and I'll tell people, no, you stop doing boxing. Wing Chun's the best. <laughs> it's economy of motion. You know, you save energy. It's faster. It's more skillful. All of that stuff, right? Mm. So when you love something, you share it. So when people see, I think my kind of tra- trajectory or journey, they hopefully they've seen in some way me reacting to the mistakes I've made in a way that has continued a certain growth. And there's much more to do, but I don't want people thinking that, you know, I was this great debater in the beginning and I and later smacked down all these atheists and these academics from Cambridge, like uh, Simon Blackmore was from Cambridge. He's a humane scholar and Professor Lawrence Krauss. No, I had, I have, I have and I had my issues, you know, I wasn't really grounded that much in the philosophical tradition or even in the Islamic tradition. Mm. So it was when I got into my kind of mid 30s or maybe just before I started to take it a little bit more seriously. And I am where I am. So I don't want people thinking, you know, I was like a major reference point. I was like, you know, cannon fodder for the Muslim community. I had to defend, you know, we had to do something because at that time, not many people were doing things. And alhamdulillah, Allah made it easy. Allah inspired me to a degree that it came across as robust. But if you were to scratch the surface a lot, you know, it wasn't as as it seems. So I don't want people thinking, you know, it's because I come across as eloquent or I used to lay good smackdowns and I came across as intellectual and somehow I said the right thing. It doesn't necessarily mean I was the right person, right? Or I did things in the right methodology. I didn't. So I just want to make that clear. Well, I I, I would say I, I have a lot in common with that from the aspect that I really don't, have much patience for classroom settings. And as soon as I get something, I want to go out to the front line. So a lot of people that I taught uh, Aqidah and Fiqh to, I was just teaching what I had, right? And sometimes it turned out right. And sometimes there were mistakes embedded, right? Not, alhamdulillah, not blunders, right? But, you know, little mistakes embedded in there uh, that you have to fix over time. But that's really the best way to... Uh, to start and, and is just to to get an experience, see how the world's going to react, you know, to this, how that, how the, yeah. how this human being in front of you is going to react to what you're saying. That's the only way to know, you know, find an inroad to influencing people or to, mm. to getting your message across. And you realize you learn from experience that all these things don't work. I never had a mentor who came and said, you know, as an imam of a mosque, you really shouldn't tweet this, right? Uh, <laughs> never had that, right? Or, you know, before you publish this, reference this book. That I never had any of that, but I'm learning it as we go on. And I got to sure. be honest, WhatsApp has really transformed a lot of things. Because I now, I talk, I don't pass a word through social media about aqidah or fiqh, except that first it goes through one or two or three of the heavyweight scholars of the you know, Arab world who will read it, go through it. And we have English speaking heavyweights too now, right? Guys who are, you know, shiuf that are a bit older than me, but they've been around the block. So now I don't filter, I don't put out any word unless it's gone through four or five people first or one or two people. Uh, but that's, we're all learning, right? And learning uh, on the on the fly. Moeen, you have yeah. something to say? 
No, I was just going to say you got rid of your flip phone. I'm more shocked about that. No, no, no. This, I still have the flip phone. <laughs> this does not have anything on it except for what I need in terms of the work and social media stuff. I'm, I'm lifting up my, my iPhone here, which is uh, red because when my phone broke, my iPhone broke, my, uh, my wife just picked one. For, I said, oh, I like the red one, right? Turns out that you're, like, you're supporting AIDS or AIDS research, but whatever. It's a nice red phone. And that's it. But I, I shut this thing off whenever I need to. It's only for like work purposes. And I still have my flip. So I'm still texting you on your flip. That's why it takes like the. the yeah, through 20, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah. No, that's uh, go ahead. Nas. Yeah. So I just I just had a question for uh, brother Hamza. By the way, I'm geeking out right now because uh, I'm on this podcast. <laughs> I, I grew up me and my friends uh from our area grew up watching your videos so you're in Muhammad hijabs um so we've we've definitely seen the transformation of like you know your earlier arguments and then now the more sophisticated you know your book and all the the, the modern things that you're doing the question i had uh for you was um you know when you mentioned that when you had these theological questions and these issues there were no Islamic resources at the time. And I was facing something similar. And the people that I turned to were also Christian philosophers. And in a certain sense, I knew more about Christian theology than I, than I did about Islam. So the question is like, how did you, like, how did you navigate that? Because of like, for example, when you're reading so much William Lane Craig, you start thinking, you know, um, uh, you know, are his ideas even compatible with Islam, right? And then you say something in public and then uh, an Akita scholar says that, okay, actually that's kufr. And then- or on this podcast when Alex <laughs> does a smackdown. Right. And, <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've certainly had a lot of these problems. I mean, just recently I, I uh, shared an idea with, um, uh, with a scholar of Kalam and he said, okay, this is not actually compatible with Islam. And then I was writing something and okay, that, I can't put that in, you know. <laughs> and uh so like how did you how did you navigate that like did you uh did yeah you islamic theology like uh, can you give yes a- so the important thing to do is firstly when you're engaged in this type of work it's like sparring isn't it so mm-hmm. you know you're just throwing things out there is this punch gonna work oh no it's not then you get knocked out and when mm-hmm. you get knocked out you have to get up <laughs> right mm-hmm. you have to get up and you have to learn from your mistakes you have to keep your hands up right you have to learn new skills defenses and attacks and so on and so forth so likewise, on this journey, I got attacked left, right and center. Obviously, it was by obnoxious people who have an, the adab of a donkey. In actual fact, that's insulting to a donkey because donkeys just, you know, do what they have to do. But some humans, they, they, don't, they don't follow humanity. I mean, I'm so shocked that the Muslim community, they're so quick to kill someone, man. They're so quick to break them down and not elevate them, which is not a son of the Prophet So, but alhamdulillah, because... You know, I have a different personality. I was brought up in an area called Hackney in London in the 80s. Oh, that's really rough. bad. I actually got yeah. jumped in Hackney. Really? I, w- I went out and, and we just did something naive and we said, <laughs> let's, not, take a, <laughs> let's, let's take a bike ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's take oh a bike God. ride. So I didn't know England, uh, London. So I would take, we took a bike ride and we rented these bikes for like 60 pounds. And we're riding through in a beautiful city. We're looking at a Saturday and it was sunny, it's, which is rare, right? And all of a sudden we end up in Hackney, right? And I didn't know that this was one of the more dangerous areas. So I put the bikes to the side and, and went on a, in a park to pray Dhuhr while the bike is a little next to me. So I get up and the bike is taken 
the bikes were taken by a group of eight dudes. And then I went up with, I went up to them. I'm not going to just let them take these bikes. Right. And then they surrounded me eight guys. And the, and the guy said, guy, bro, he said, don't even do it. Don't, don't go to the hospital. Right. Uh, don't even try to fight back. I went up to one of the guys and we exchanged two punches real quick. And then they converged real quick, eight guys. And they're like, listen, don't even bother. We're taking the bikes. The $300 you're going to pay to the bike shop is much less than the pain that you're going to go through in the hospital. So I thought I calculated real quick. I thought, yeah, maybe he's right, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sick to hear I went back, and I had a nice cut, though, because I had one of those rimless glasses. You know, remember, remember back in the day, the rimless glasses? Yep. And when he punched me, I had a nice, perfect circle cut right there. I actually liked it, right? You know, <laughs> hockey players were supposed to like these injuries, these facial injuries, right? I just have to make up a good story for it. But uh, I went back and paid the guy 300 pounds right uh for the bike that i lost so that's that's my story about hackney oh damn so sorry now you grew up up there it was fun like you said sparring you gotta spar in life you yeah, have to true. get hit in life because when he punched me i was like it was actually my first time outside of a hockey rink getting punched and i thought that was it that wasn't even that bad right <laughs> it really wasn't that bad right so any event go on yeah so where was I? You oh, said right, you yeah, grew, so up, grew in up in Hackney. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, I, I, I can take a bit of, you know, abuse and people wanting to break you down and stuff like that. So to be honest, when I got a lot of feedback from atheists, from Muslims, even those that didn't like me and didn't want me around, it was one of the best things ever, honestly, because it helped me grow. And I think the key is with anyone involved in public work is that you need to be sincere or try to be sincere and you need to you need to learn from your mistakes and you need to acknowledge them. So that helped a lot. What also what also helped was going back to the tradition. So engaging with Aqidah Tahawiyah, for example, and engaging with scholars and asking the right questions and so on and so forth, because it's not everything that the Christians philosophers say that's wrong. Of course not. But there are, of, of course, many things that you have to navigate. So I have a principle when it comes to Kalam type of work, especially in the contemporary sense, is that you have to try and ensure that the premises, the presuppositions and the principles that you're adopting when you're articulating an argument are in line with the Islamic tradition, namely Kitab and Sunnah, or they're inferred from the Quran and the Sunnah and the tradition. As long as you have that, you're going to be consistent in some way. And you have to double check your work with people all the time, okay? And so going back to the tradition, studying helped. Absolutely, it definitely helped. It definitely helped. And that's my advice to people: don't go, don't just create a YouTube channel channel now. You know, learn from my mistakes, other people's mistakes. Make sure that you're connected with scholars, with students of knowledge, and also that you have a decent relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because if you don't it's it's gonna it's gonna catch you it's gonna it's gonna eat you up so that's when when people ask Hamza should I study philosophy sometimes to some people I say no mm. there should be certain conditions so I give full conditions number one you have to have a sound understanding of your own creed otherwise you'll end up in a big mess right mm -hmm. uh, number two you have to be connected to mainstream scholars not any type of scholar because I remember you'll ask a scholar who's an expert in fiqh and aqidah question, 
they might not even give you the right answer because they haven't got the skills to contemporize what they learn. And that's a huge challenge, right? So be connected to scholars. Have a decent relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'm not just talking about the fara'id. I'm talking about your du'as and dhikr in the morning and the evening. This is essential. Then the other thing was be sincere. Do it for the right reason. So there's four, four, four things. I forgot what the fifth one is. Maybe it was just four. But mm. you have to be sincere. You have to do it for a certain purpose. If it's there just because you, know, you like philosophical reading, that's, that's, that might eat you up as well. These, these are dangerous areas, right? So those are the four things that I tell people to do before they enter into philosophy. Yeah, and, and just before we go to Moeen, the eating you up part is not just the from in your mind, but the sparring as well can really transform a person negatively, mm. uh, especially if your opponent descends to a certain level. But I've I never had a problem sparring with somebody who is clearly like wrong in the sense of being you know on a position that without doubt is wrong what i've always had a problem with and actually get depressed is sparring with another muslim who's supposed to be on this we're in the same ummah we're on the same mm. side prophet even <laughs> has a hadith <laughs> recite the quran but if you differ on it get up from it why because differing within the ranks of muslims is destructive right yeah, now the heretics out of that, someone bringing a complete heresy is out of that. Ahlul bid'ah wal ahwa. And of course, the you know, atheist philosophers, non believers, those type of people who are attacking Islam from outside. That's obvious. So I think the sparring part of the things, it can get really nasty when it's, uh, uh, and I would say the only time I would actually put my sword down and walk out, it, I'll, I'll take the L if it's, you know, with other Muslims when it gets you know, using Trump style takedowns and dishonesty and all that stuff. To me, that it's actually disgusting. And I would want to just, I'll leave the whole thing. Uh, so when people get into these debates, not, you know, not necessarily de literally debating, but uh, what they call like, um, uh, you know, these issues, contentious issues that go back and forth, they got to keep that in mind. Do not go into the ring with your fellow ummati. Because that's something the Prophet said. The Quran is always all, uh, connecting Muslims with rafa, compassion, and dropping the issue. But it's always connecting with the kufar. kufar You want to be rough and tough? Do that with clear heretics in the ummah and clear enemies. Mm. Yeah. So, Mu'in, your point? Yeah, so I mean, it's really not a question for uh, Brother Hamza specifically, but really a thought for all of us that, I, that I'd like to, you know, get, get some thoughts on is, you know, I, I remember watching, you know, Brother Hamza's videos back in like, you know, 2008, 2009, heavily, um, when I, especially when I was in college. And, and I think that, like you mentioned, the, the converse, not only have you grown and at you know, it changed in your in your approach to things as other debaters and, and you know speakers on this topic have as well. I feel like the world has also changed a lot, right? And 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 the the Muslim Ummah and their needs have changed as well as as well as the world's needs. And and I remember back in 2007, 2008, the concept of like neo-atheism, liberalism, these were these were huge topics and they, they needed to be covered with uh, uh, you know strength. And, and now when you have like a book like The Divine Reality, most people aren't, don't want to read it because it's, I mean, most people are just apathetic to these things now, right? It's just, you know, the, I have um, 
noticed over the course of the last you know 15 years it's really transitioned from like this neo atheism liberalism to now just just general apathy and uh Nas and I have recently reread uh, Brave New World and it's uh you know one one thing that I think Nas brought up to me earlier is it's really instead of this 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 idea of you know philosophies being pushed on you it's really here's just entertainment this engrossment of just uh uh, euphoria, constant euphoria that people have. That's mm-hmm. where that's where people have you know have gotten lost. So I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on it, especially Brother Hamza. You know, as you've seen sort of this this change in the landscape of uh, of uh, of you know theological uh, conversation amongst different groups and, and so on. Yeah, I want to hear what Nas says first. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wow. go. Let's go, Nas. Let's go, Alex, and then we'll go to Hamza. Uh. What was the question? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Muin's uh, pretty much right here, right? Um, like one of the one of the things that um, the author of Brave New Worlds, Aldous Huxley, he points out is that uh, you know during his time um, there was two theories of how humanity would be destroyed, right? Uh, the human spirit would be destroyed. So one of them was uh, George Orwell and his idea, which is that you end up with putting so much power in the hand of the state that they just suppress you, right? They take all of your liberties, they spy on uh, every single uh, moment of your life and they, they enforce all of the arbitrary rules on you by force, right? And so human freedom would be destroyed. Now, the second idea is Huxley's, which is that humanity would be actually not destroyed by force, but by entertainment. So there's so much uh, you know, they'll basically be drowned in plenty. So there's so much stuff that's just pushed on you, so much good stuff that you just become absolutely apathetic to anything else. And I can tell from personal experience that the reason I stopped playing video games, right? Like I was, I was a huge gamer. And the reason I stopped, ironically, was because there were too many good games to play, mm. right? <laughs> and so I was just like, look at all of these, you know, 200 you know, games that are really amazing to play. You have to sink in 80 hours to each of them. And, but I have life obligations. I'm just like, you know what? I'm apathetic to video games. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I think the same thing has happened in, um, in the, the intellectual sphere, right? Like a lot of Muslims, you know, there's all these podcasts and I know we're probably part of the problem too. You know, we have a podcast, but there's all these podcasts, all these voices, everybody's like, you know, refuting everybody else. And the regular Muslim, you know, me and Muin, were just like, you know, I just check out, man, right? Mm-hmm. I'll just go to Dr. Shadi's masjid or uh, go to my local masjid and just pray and forget about all this stuff, right? And I think that's what happened. That's what has happened in the past, like, 10 years or so. But mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like uh, Brother Hamza's opinion on that. Hmm. Yeah, so... Um... That's 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 an interesting point. You know, I think I think it's 1984 and it is Brave New World. What we're really looking at, yeah. um, they they were both right. Unfortunately, um, we both have governments that are increasingly repressive and increasingly limiting freedoms. I mean, look at what France is doing to the Muslims, right? Right. Um, or what Germany is doing to its general population. And um, you know, whatever your position is about how serious a threat the coronavirus is. It's, uh, there's no question that governments take opportunities like that and they act opportunistically and uh, use that to seize more power. And the thing about government is once it, it, never, it never gives back power, even if it's taken under emergency uh, mm-hmm. rules, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, that becomes just a permanent thing. Um, and also we are being entertained to death, you know, um, not, to, not to steal a, a quote from an author, but we are, we're entertaining ourselves to death. And, um, you know, what Moeen mentions that nobody cares about these, these bigger issues. Uh, I think that's 100% true. Um, you know, I, I, if I'm going to give just one broad sweeping, probably too broad of a brush uh, analysis of it, I think that the at least the online Muslims, right, they're more caught up in um, this gotcha culture and this, uh, let me see what I can point out about somebody and retweet them with a picture of something they tweeted four years ago and say this you, you know, that kind of thing, than actually engaging in any kind of intellectual arguments. And I think part of it is, you know, to tie a few things together here, part of it is that most people have never gotten punched in the face for real. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 don't, they don't believe that there's serious consequences to the things that you do and say. And, you know, um, it, when you walk around thinking that you can just act like, I don't know, like a teenage girl, even though you're a 28-year-old man, mm-hmm. and just go online and insult people and uh, deride people because you disagree with maybe one word in what they said instead of... I, I don't know what you can do with a group of people like that. Mm. Um, so, and I think it's just getting worse, right? I think it just keeps getting, mm. it's, it's just, a, it's a cycle that, that uh, it's like a snowball effect. So yeah, and, and, that's, and that's my and take on it. Oh, and also, to, yeah, go ahead. Just one other thing. People don't read books, mine. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they don't. I mean, Regardless of the subject, people don't even read anymore. Right. This is a joke from from Saad that he always brings up. But I mean, there's a, there's a bit of reality to this is, you know, the, the stage I'm at now is, I mean, I've been reading this stuff for, for a better part of, you know, 10 years now. And, and you know, got engrossed and, and, and really a part of this stuff, you know, we were doing this podcast. Now I'm at a point where it's just like, hey, listen, I'd rather just do some dhikr and Quran rather than become a syncretist of some sort, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke but it's there's a truth to this right because uh that's what's that's what people are on now right (laughs) Mm -hmm. well the thing is that i i I found i find it really brilliant what alex just said about it's both it's not one or the other it's brave new world and it's 1984 and because it's brave new world we don't realize it's 1984 right and because yes. they got really smart, it's not like one king who controls you anymore. They're just, they'll give you a new face every four years, right? Every five years, you have a new face, a new regime. And it gives it the image that no one person is actually in control. But in fact, if you look at the laws and look at the way things are, it really is to a high degree 1984. You can't step outside your house without having some kind of a license, the requirement. You want to build a shed, you got to get permissions. There's everything. There's so many limitations on what people could do now. And something that, uh, Hamza, you said in one of your, in your, uh, why God is worthy of worship is that, I think it's that video that what's one of your videos. Uh, we always say, feel like obedience. When we say we have to obey Allah and his messenger, that this is like medieval. Wait a second. Our modern society is the most obedient. Modern man is the most obedient person, right? Uh-huh. Ever. You go, you go back 400 years, go back 500 years, 600 years. If a guy didn't like something, like, the heck with this. I'll go find myself a plot of land somewhere. I'll deal with my consequences myself. I got my sheep. I got my swords, right? I have my wife is with me and my kids are with me. I'll have a couple sons. I'll buy some swords. No one will mess with me. He was much more independent. Of course, there were consequences. Life was a lot harder. 
but he was much more independent than he is today. So I found that idea. And as to Alex's point on the way the discourse has come ties right into what Nas is saying, because there's so much out there. The only way to get attention is to be outrageous and simplistic. And in order to be outrageous and simplistic, you also oftentimes have to sacrifice truth and dignity, right? And so at the end of the day, if you could just get a, a good meat and potatoes to a couple people, that's really good. That like, you know, Moine is saying, what the heck with all this stuff? Well, no, if we get more meat, it's true it's that true, yeah. we're not gonna compete in that melee, right? It's a, it's a crazy fray. We're not, we don't wanna compete in that. But if we can get some meat and potatoes, to five, 10 people, right? And it really sinks in. That's all we care about, right? Forget the, 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 the rat race or the digital rat race. So, all right, Hamza, what are your, what's your take? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think referring back to one of the brothers when he mentioned about the online world and you've mentioned about simplicity and being outrageous, mm -hmm. this is also as a result of a kind of neoliberal culture as well, because in liberalism, the kind of premise, philosophical premise is atomism or individualism is the primary on the primacy on, on, on the self, your sovereign. And the whole society is structured that way to a degree. I mean, there's crude examples, you know, L'Oreal, because I'm worth it, stuff like that. But you could find crude examples and profound examples. And I think that is now affected all of us to the degree when we express ourselves, we have a type of egocentrism, like my way of seeing things is the only way of seeing things. And it has really affected our nafs, our ego. What's the nature of the ego? I always want to be right. I never want to be wrong. I always want to look good. I don't want to look bad. I always want to impose. I don't want to be imposed upon. And this is shaitan. Shaitan is a teacher for us in some way because he teaches us how not to be. Allah told him to bow down to Adam. No. Right? I'm not getting imposed upon. I'm imposing. Hmm. I'm flyer. He's clay. I look good. He looks bad. Right? I'm better. Right? I'm right, Allah. You're wrong. Now the billah, right? So his kufr was 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 kibber. Hmm. So this is the nature shaitan teaches what, what the nafs is. So our egos are like that now. So and we always want to be right and we never want to be wrong. We always want to impose. We don't want to be imposed upon. We always want to look good and never look bad at the expense of the truth. Mm. Right? And this expresses itself on the online world. And not only that, most people online world or most people, unfortunately, suffer to a certain degree of a lack of... What's the right word to use? They have self-esteem issues. And they're, mm. they ha they're scared. You know, when people come across like that, they actually have self-esteem issues and they're scared because it takes a kind of powerful person to be able to react with nuance, with mm. rahma, right? It, that's, that's a powerful thing to do, right? And they have self-esteem issues and, and, they're, and they're fearful. And society plays on, so, on self-esteem, like they wants to lower it in, to some degree. Mm. And people are scared, right? They're unsure, they're uncertain. And that expresses itself because that's how you come across. It's like us and them mindset, right? That's the kind of mindset that, that is built as a result of that. Or you want to be excessively harsh, right? Because it shows to yourself that I'm on the right team and I'm right, they're wrong. And it makes you feel a full sense of strength. So there's a psychological element that can be, you know, 
linked to liberalism to some degree. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing is, just to try and square the circle here, the other thing is that we're catapulting ourselves to nihilism. Mm -hmm. like people just don't care. Mm -hmm. They literally do not care. And really, one way of dealing with that is adopting a Quranic narrative because the Quran, you know, it's it's a heavy book. Right? It's, it's, it is a heavy book. If you really try and discover yourself in the Quran, because, you know, you don't read the Quran, it's reading you, you would see some things going on. It's going to reveal who you are, right? When Allah, mm. especially when he deals with the concept of kibr or, or, or your, your so-called self-sufficiency, you know, wasn't there a time where the human being wasn't even mentioned? You mm. know, who do you think you are? You're a nutfatin min mani and you came from a despised fluid, right? Mm. And now you're somebody, right? You're a baby. You know, think about the concept of being a baby, man. If you take a baby and you put it in the corner of a room for a few weeks and don't touch it or feed it, it's going to die. We're dependent mm. on our mothers, fathers, on the system, on other people. And all of those things are ultimately dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet, why do we act as if we were catapulted from our mother's womb with a briefcase and a tie and a bank balance, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. these things need to be reminded. It's like a, it's like a wake-up call, you know? Mm. So... When people don't care when they're in a state of ghafla, they're heedless, you need a spiritual and intellectual slap. That's mm -hmm. that's how else are you gonna do it? People literally don't care, then you need to like, you know, almost the equivalent of shaking someone by intellectual and emotionally saying, Wake up, this you know, you need to uh Well, that's what a lot of people are saying. We need a, a reset button needs to be pushed at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? for sure. Which is scary because what does that mean? You know, like uh, it's got it's not just gonna reset. Our, our heedlessness about life it's going to reset everything every industry everything that we enjoy and dislike and dislike are going to be reset and who knows what that's going to look like right yeah I, I mean i think like you like you mentioned along with this general apathy mm -hmm. simultaneously people have existential angst right so i think you know people are definitely becoming more receptive to the to to deem spirituality, you know, all these things in general, and, and, and you know, you're out, you know, speaking to people more more than you know I am, and, and uh, you know, Doctor Shadi, and, and you are, you guys are, and you you probably see this from people now, right? It's even though simultaneously they they have a lot of you know uh, apathy, they they just feel blah about life, like they don't really know what to do, what direction to go. So they have money, they have family, they have all these things, but there's just, just general existential angst. Like I hate my job. I hate, mm. my, family, I hate my friends. Like, I don't you know. And, uh, yeah, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll tell you what uh, solutions are for that. The solutions are for that are little, like low investment, but often regular and predictable meetings, face-to-face -face gatherings, right? For example, uh, we used to have dhikr night in the masjid. We recite Surah Al-Mulk. We recite the Adhkar of the evening. We do some Qasidas. That was one of the most important things we did a couple times a month. And we have some sweets. No investment, no personal investment, right? In the sense that we're not asking you for anything. You just show up. Do some dhikr. Don't do it. Listen. We eat some sweets. We go home. No, like, getting in your life, asking you for allegiance, asking you to do something great. We're not asking you to do like uh, or anything major, not even thinking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the little things that we actually have. One of the most proud things I'm most proud about uh, is that when we go out every Friday 
to give out some food to the homeless, which started off with like 10 meals, eight meals. We're now at a regular hundred meals, right? We, we actually have a community there. We go there and there are guys there who know us, right? We might not know each other by name, but we know them. We become regulars. They become regulars. It's us. And I'm like, hold on a second. We're actually forming a little community here. Right. And that's really what, you know, is going to make people happy. Right. Hopefully it gives you a little dosage of happiness every week that it erases some of the anxiety of life. And that's what I believe that the worst thing that's happened to us is this individualism that's disallowed these little tiny but regular gatherings to take place. Right. Yeah, brother Hamza, you're going to say something? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to refer to what you said, brother Maureen, about the existential stuff. I think it's quite powerful because now what I've seen to a certain degree, and obviously my experience is limited, that, you know, sometimes I'm asked by an Islamic society at university to give a talk on God's existence. I say no. Mm. I say, let's do a talk on why Allah is worthy of worship. Mm. Because the existential arguments now, I see it in their face. Mm. Like, you know, you could argue philosophy and you could split the philosophical hair until the cows come home, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you're going to consciousness, the hard problem of consciousness, there's lots. If you go into academia, you can't even find some responses online. It's like the phenomenal concept strategy by Michael Tai. Try and find that, right? Mm. In, in any detail. This is high level academia. The physicalists are trying to fight back. But the point is this. You can't discuss that with university undergrad students. You lose them, yeah? But what I found that is it, that is, what I found a strategy that's affecting them now is going to the existential questions like who are you? Who's are you? For whom are you? Why are you? Right? Mm. And also to take what they believe to be non-negotiables to show that your non-negotiables do not make any sense under your own philosophy and your beliefs. Mm. And the logical implications of your atheism or your rejection or your philosophical naturalism or your physicalism, the logical implications are that you have to throw all your beliefs out the window about human value, human rights, uh, a sense of purpose in your life, and so on and so forth. Even the concept of hope, right? Even the concept of what, it, what you think a human being is and how, how you... Elevate human being, other non-human animals, right? Unless you're a vegan, of course, but that's a different discussion, yeah? So when you attack it from that perspective, something happens to their fitrah. Something mm. happens to their roh, their soul, honestly. And it's quite interesting because Martin Lings, he makes a really beautiful point. He says, man cannot not worship. And this really is almost like a very simplistic tafsir of chapter 39, verse 29. And I'm paraphrasing when Allah says in the Quran, consider the situation of two people. One man is a slave to many masters and they're all quarreling. And another man, he is a servant to one master whose condition is best. So it's as if the default position of humanity is to worship something. Because if you want to know something the most, love something the most, obey something the most, and direct your acts of worship towards something the most, like ultimate gratitude, that's your object of worship. So even if you reject the creator, you're worshipping something. Like Allah says in the Quran, have you not seen those who take their own desires as their Lord? Or their, or their, or their monks and their rabbis, right? Or whatever the case may be. So human beings, by default, irrespective of philosophy, is in a state of worship. So the Quran comes down to lay a smackdown on that idea and basically says, 
you're you're worshiping the wrong thing. Mm. Worshiping the one who is worthy of worship. That narrative, Sheikh, with all due respect, and I say this, you know, I feel very comfortable with you guys. So I'm going to say, as I as as a Greek, <laughs> as a Greek mm-hmm. Brit, right, that we break takes our winnings. Uh-huh. This narrative, <laughs> this narrative, shockingly, has not been part of our dawah for a long time. Yep. It is shocking. We have secularized our dawah. Let me repeat. We have removed the ruh from our dawah, yeah? Mm. And, oh, I can prove God's existence to you. Yeah, so what? So what? And then what? Fine, it's very important. Absolutely. But then what, right? And especially in our context, people don't care about proofs anymore. We live in mm-hmm. a post-truth culture, generally speaking. A lot of it is very first-person, subjective, mm-hmm. existential Narrative. understanding. Yeah. So plant those seeds in them. And it's extremely rational anyway. It's, it, this existential approach is coherent, especially when you juxtapose it, juxtapose it with the existence. You're worshipping something anyway. This is who's worthy of worship. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then it's the right, then they, and they get to think. They get to engage with the book of Allah. Look at his names and attributes. Oh my God, Allah is Al-Hudud. He's the excessively loving. He's Al-Rahman. He's Al-Latif. He's Al-Hakim. What does this mean? How do I actualize these in my life? What are the implications? So on and so forth. And you get to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So don't get me wrong. You know, I'm still doing philosophy. So I, do, I feel we do need philosophical arguments and we have them we're standing on the shoulders of giants something that you addressed earlier about the book and you said you take things and you know you don't give credit that that who cares mm-hmm. what well, yeah you know my book i'm standing on the shoulders of giants too what you think i've mentioned everyone you know, although i try to be very careful because from experience i remember atheists i knew they would go through the book with a fine tooth comb and i would even reference a quasi idea i got from a youtube clip Mm. Yeah, if you go to the references, you see it. I said, I adopted this idea from a YouTube clip here because <laughs> yeah. I wanted to be very careful because, you know, uh, people are shayateen, right? Now, anyway, notwithstanding, by the way, I'm going to send you guys a couple of boxes of the revised edition. It's, it's, oh, it's nice. improved. So Great. if you give me the address later, I'll send you stuff. It's free. We'll oh, send definitely. It yeah? definitely. So um, where was I? Yeah, so the, sorry for going for too long. The existential mm. stuff, so important. We have the truth we have an amazing spiritual tradition it needs to be revived and uh, that that narrative in the Tao is is unfortunately missing mm-hmm. Alex? Alex yeah so uh, one of the things that I found the uh, most beneficial that you you touched upon just now and it's in one of your uh, one of your one of your writings is that worship is not limited to salah and dua and dik. Right, worship is something that it's it's intentionality. It's how we do. It's why we do. It's why we feed our kids. It's why we get up in the morning and go to work. It's why we take care of our bodies. It's all of it. Um, and I think that that's 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 an an excellent uh, way to reach out to people that don't, you know, the concept of worship. Despite the fact that it's true and we do it and it's what we do every day with our lives for something, a lot of people find the idea alien. Right, this mm-hmm. this concept of servitude of worship of slavehood to Allah. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out that I think that's one of the most uh, most beneficial aspects of, of this conversation is mm-hmm. that you have to make people aware of what they really are, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And then it's just it's just directing them. I also would want just to put in my two cents is that it's very defensive. You already put yourself, you framed yourself in the defense when you have to argue for God's existence, mm. right? Uh, you, you've already put yourself in a, you, it basically admitting 
that your back is against the wall and you have to justify everything from the ground up. But when you say they put the question of why is God worthy of worship, you've already embedded or built in the premise there. And now you're saying, all right, we're already doing this. Let's give the reasons why and the benefits why, right? which is a lot smarter. Atheism is not acceptable from anyone except maybe like some people at a higher academic level who've actually mm -hmm. thought through the implications and are sticking to their guns. Atheism from the common man is just laziness. Mm -hmm. And it's often just, I don't like the religion I was raised in. Um, yes. It's, it's not an acceptable position and you should just brush it aside, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could tell you a number of instances right, where I've spoken to atheists and you know, so some of them are, are close friends of mine and they'll be atheists hardcore up until the point that they have, you know, a, a very difficult time in their life or something's going on, you know, you, you know, they'll say, you know, I, I've had an atheist come up to me and say, Hey, pray for me. It's like, yeah, but you don't believe in God. He's like, yeah, you know, but just, just pray for me. You know, it's, I'm having a <laughs> tough time. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, it's there, right. It's in the fitra. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, Dr. Shea, you mentioned you were going to play a clip. Yeah. I have a clip just about the inconsistencies within atheism uh yeah. we're, we're in the natural thinking of atheists themselves and i have two clips it's one video but i'm cutting up two sections where uh, susan blackmore who's an atheist she's going to talk about the meaninglessness of life then about how she makes sense of the meaninglessness of life right which is a contradiction and then the sort of pitiful and pathetic uh seems pretty sad of what is meaningful to her, right? And 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 these are two separate clips. So here we go. When horrible things happen to me, or I feel, or I read some terrible thing going on in the world. Yes, those are tragedies going on in the world. Um, my response is, nothing matters. It's all empty and meaningless. This is how the world is. Get used to it. Get on with it. Okay, so that's the first clip. Now let's look oh, at how. Here's she... another thing. I've often done this with my students. Let's suppose you become nihilistic. Uh, nothing matters. There's no point in doing it. I mean, I think we live in a pointless universe. What are you going to do? And I say to them, like William James in his wonderful thing about getting up in the morning, um, but that's sort of a slightly different point that he makes there. But I say to them, okay, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, think it's all pointless. I there's no point in doing anything. Now, what are you going to do? Well, actually, you're going to need to go to the loo. You're going to get out of bed and you're going to go to the bathroom. And when you're there, you'll think, well, actually, I'm hungry. I think, well, I think I want to go down to the kitchen. Oh, I probably should put my slippers on. Why don't I get dressed? You go and have something to eat. And then you think, I'm bored. And you go to university and go into your lectures. And, you know, we are not creatures who will just not do anything. To me, to go through that process, which I've done in the past a lot, and it's just natural now, is... Um... Okay, she carries on. But you see... What is her response is that the, the animalistic needs of the human being will busy you from thinking about that anymore. And those little and she carries on and she says these little things that society we all do, it, it, we agree on the meaning of it, it's uh, essentially. But here she is going on and on on trying to make meaning out of mm. this. So it's a paradox. It's, a, it's complete contradictory what she's saying. No. Yeah, so I mean, uh, responding to that clip and also what uh, Brother Hamza said, I, I try to be an optimist because I'm a natural pessimist. Um, and I, what I've seen, at least from the online culture, is uh, like uh, what Muin said and Hamza, uh, Brother Hamza said and uh, Brother Alex, that people's fitra is still there, right? You can't, you can't somehow erase the fitra. So 
what you see is, I mean, people, for example, 4 million copies of a book like 12 Rules for Life by, by Jordan Peterson. I mean, that book is actually quite complicated if you actually read it. It's a very dense philosophy, some of it bad philosophy, but 4 million people bought it. I mean, just imagine that. And it's not even a New York Times bestseller. And, uh, you know, the people like Ben Shapiro and all these other intellectual dark web type people, Joe Rogan, people are listening to three hours, right? Three hour long podcasts of Joe Rogan, right? Exploring all these different ideas and all this other stuff. So there's a real thirst for wanting to find some type of meaning to life. And just like Susan Blackmore said, it's actually a biological imperative within us to actually find that meaning. Like mm -hmm. you, can't, um, you can't somehow deny it. Um, so uh, C.S. Lewis, for example, makes a, quite a strong argument for God, I think, just based on that need. It's called the argument from desire. Brother Hamza, you definitely know about it, which is that just as you have these natural desires for food, right, or for shelter, and just as those natural desires point to something actual in the world, right, you can't say that, you know, I'm hungry, but then you deny that food exists. Well, no, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Your hunger indicates that there has to be food. In the same exact way, your biological drive for meaning must indicate that there is some true meaning to the world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and your biological desire for worship, and uh, as Brother Hamza pointed out, must indicate that there is a proper object of worship. So, so we, can't, we can't simply just um, act as if these things don't exist and create our own meaning. There is actually you know, we have to biologically make sense of our lives. I mean, or else, you know, we wither away, so. And I, uh, Moin, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, I mean, ignoring all the philosophy stuff, if I was just to answer this from like a common man's perspective, this is just, just seems like a very like horrible way to live life, right? Like forget, forget, forget all of the philosophy, right? Like if you were to just take two people, you know, one person, you know, believes in God, he has family, he's going to the masjid, he has, you know, he's eating samosas and stuff for iftar, he's got all these things going on, he's playing ball in the in the evenings with his friends at the masjid, and like you have this lady who's just like you know trying to get up in the morning by thinking about going to the loo, like come on now like this is this is not a very difficult decision right yeah. like, well, like forget all the philosophy this just seems like a very like crappy way to live life it's like you know just you know pardon my french this is and i want to say something before i get to that other point uh is that there was an article i read about a woman who was a cop in england cop in london she's about 47 years old and she decided to become a muslim right She's not like a detective or anything, like does menial level of the cop work, like just like traffic and all that stuff. So they asked her, like, what's what's going on? Why would you become Muslim? Right. You're you're free. You could do what you want. Right. She said, yes. And I did what I wanted. Right. And I found <laughs> it to be pretty empty. And I found myself envying. Right. These people that walk across the street. Okay, With these Bengalis with you know three kids and the husband and wife and i see them going from the mosque this is east london she's from east london the mosque over to eat some food and then while they're walking they see another family and she's like we don't have this we don't have that right and i did the bar thing and the sleeping around thing right and it left me empty so as to moine's point zero philosophy she said, this is the best. This is a better way. It's a warmer way to live. That's all it is. It's warmer. It's I got people and that guy is not going to leave his wife tomorrow. Right. Of course, we have divorces. Right. But 
the I, the concept that there's no commitment in a one night stand type relationship or even a boyfriend and girlfriend there's a very minimal commitment but in marriage is a big commitment right and the concept that he just walk away that doesn't exist right uh, built into the intent of marriage so that's to Moyne's point and it goes back to the issue of the actual when the rubber hits the road of a world without God and that's really what we should talk about now when the rubber hits the road yes to a world without God it's very dark and everything that people think is sacred will not be sacred like uh, you know sometimes you said in one of your videos too that uh, you know non-penetrative pedophilia why is it off the table right consent right. i mean don't these kids have consent to be a boy or a girl why can't he have consent that someone rubs them no, no harm in that he enjoys it okay so you open a world oh, open up a door or you go off a cliff that really has no ending so maybe sometimes you want to carry on and, and and discuss that and what you say to the students when you show them yeah this inconsistency and that your principles open the door to this insane world. Yes. Yeah, so Miss Black, was it Blackburn, right? Or yeah, Blackwell? Susan, Blackmore. Susan Blackmore. Blackmore. Sorry, Blackmore. Yeah. Yes. Because uh, I heard of her because she wrote about consciousness as well. Mm -hmm. And she's obviously, from what I remember, a physicalist. And she's an incoherent mess, with all due respect. She's basically saying, life is empty and meaningless and this is an existential strategy by some of the atheists they say life is is empty and meaningless meaningless and anything that happens to you in life it's empty and meaningless and if you react to it in some way you have to understand that's also empty and meaningless and if you complain well why is it empty and meaningless well they're going to say well it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless and yet what they try and say is well that gives you now a new realm of possibility trying to achieve what you want in your life but all those achievements are meaningless and anything you want is meaningless. So the logical conclusion is nihilism in my view. But what's interesting, the way she tried to square her circle is she basically said, well, we could have like small meanings in our life, right? The problem with that is, and let me extend it to what a lot of atheists say. They say, yes, there's no meaning of our life, but there's meaning in life. So they make a dis philosophical distinction between the meaning of life our very existence, the cosmos, and meaning in life. So they're saying, well, we could give meaning in life and at the same time reject meaning of life. So meaning in life could be, I'm going to be a philosopher. I'm going to be a scientist. I'm going to be a surgeon. I'm going to be a poet. I'm going to be a singer. I have meaning for my existence. But I think the logical implication here is this. That is equivalent of saying, let's pretend to have meaning. It's like children playing in a playground and they pretend to be cops and robbers. Mm -hmm. They pretend to be good and, and, you know, the good people and the bad people. They pretend to be one army versus another army or doctors and nurses, whatever the case may be. What they're logically saying is this. Let's pretend to have purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that for me is, is problematic. No one's going to accept that. And even from an existential point of view, don't talk about them. Talk about the things that they love. Say, for example, she has a daughter and ask her, is your daughter meaningless? Mm -hmm. Right. And that would be quite shocking, right? They could adopt the philosophy for five minutes. But when they start realizing the implications, my daughter's not meaningless. How dare you? Well, you said everything is empty, empty and meaningless, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have your cake and eat it. So it will get them to think a little bit more seriously about what are key human intuitions, which for me, 
you know, is part of the fitrah of the human being. So the whole point of meaning, but you know what? Uh, we'll let uh, Maureen speak, but I think we should speak about this. Meaning then leads on to value. This is the big one. Hmm. When we, well, can I talk about this, Maureen? Go ahead, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So value, oh my God, when you do this in an audience at university, people are hmm. like, you know, they're like, damn. <laughs> All of these beliefs of like universal human rights are nonsense on stilts, as I think Jeremy Bentham said. Bentham said it's nonsense on stilts. Like I'm, I'm writing a uh, academic piece with that book uh, on uh, freedom of speech, right? Because I really hate the idea that these new atheist, liberals, secular, laicite extremist scumbags, they think they could make us feel very small because we react to the defamatory cartoons of Prophet Salam, and they basically say. Oh, it's about freedom of speech. Grow up. It's mm -hmm. the most, the, I'm quoting the essay, the freedom of speech fallacy, right? And when you go to academic work, they have no leg to stand on because freedom of speech is contingent on other competing values. But anyway, that's a side point. But one of the books I'm reading about this by David Van Mill, who's an academic who wrote about freedom of speech, an unprincipled approach. I think that's the title. He basically says that we can't even justify this so-called right of freedom of speech in biology. So it's impossible, mm. basically. Anyway, so the interesting point here is value. Is there a difference between me and a snowman? Like from a value point of view, according to philosophical naturalism, in other words, atheism, that you believe there's no divine, no supernatural, everything could be explained by physical processes. Is there a value difference? Can you logically follow and say, as a result of physicalism or philosophical naturalism, I can give Hamza value over a snowman. No, you cannot. Because if you break it down with different arrangement of physical processes and stuff, which are further broken down or arranged into electrons whizzing around, and they're meaningless and they have no intrinsic value. So if I get an axe and I axe away at the snowman, and then I turn around to myself and I decide to axe myself and there's blood everywhere. The snowman is a rearrangement of carbon. Hamza is a rearrangement of carbon. Mm -hmm. Under philosophical naturalism, they are not intellectually justified to say, no, you have value. Yes, they may use words like, oh, but you're human. You have consciousness. You can do great things. You have pain. But that is being religious mm. because all of that language is just neurochemicals firing which can be further reduced to electrons whizzing around mm. so they don't have an intellectual basis for even giving things value so how why would you even want to have a discussion why do you value our discussions all of a sudden and the yeah. truth and you know what the irony is so uh, according to atheism you can't really have any value from that point of view especially if you're a philosophical naturalist just to be a bit technical so that for me is the profound one because they're thinking oh my god I believe in human rights. I believe in the value of life. I believe in all of these things, but I can't justify it based on my own rejection of God or my own worldview. That one is a serious one. Well, the, the extension of what you're saying is to say someone came and chopped up your daughter and killed her. There has, there, there's no meaning to that either. Yeah. Right. And yeah. there's there's no justification to be upset about that either. I mean, only someone from the New York area would give such an example, but yeah. <laughs> I love how the three of us flinch. That makes sense. <laughs> and, 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 and what is the value of these people going out on TV, writing books, and becoming university professors 
and talking about this, mm. right? They clearly see some value in those efforts. If life is truly meaningless, why not spend it in Las Vegas? Pleasure yourself until you die, right? Wayne? Yeah, I mean, going back, I mean, this is another common man take on this is, mm -hmm. look, you can say these things in a university academic setting, right? But if you're going to say, you know, life is meaningless and you're teaching these things, look, then, you know, let's say you're playing a sports game, you score a goal. What are you going to turn around and tell your teammate? Hey, it doesn't matter. It was meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> it was meaningless. Okay. You're going to, after the game's over, you're going to go out to eat and it's like, oh, let's go out to, you know, let's go out to this place. And then you're like, no, 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 you could just, you know, let's just, let's just put all of our ingredients in a mixing bowl and mix it and we'll drink the soup, mm -hmm. you know, because it's all meaningless anyway. If you're going to live life without any meaning, and like you said, if, as soon as you start putting value, you're using religious language at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things come from some epistemology somewhere. Right. Whether it's in Christian theology, Islam, you're taking it some from somewhere. Right. And, and if you're just going to pretend to have meaning, that's cool. Like, I'm cool with that. Like, if you just want to say that you're pretending to have meaning, but then say that it's like, listen, mm -hmm. I'm just pretending I've, I've created this made up world and this, you know, made up, uh, you know, definitions and I'm going to live this life. I'm like, that's cool. You could say that. But then don't tell me that your made up world is better than this world. That mm. makes a lot more sense. Right. <laughs> so, so it's Which just... <laughs> is one of the best response to when evolutionists say that, well, religion is merely a way for human beings to cope. Right. It's a, they, they've developed this, uh, you know, make believe sa sacred in order to cope. I was like, well, then why then leave it it's... alone? I'm right. Really, <laughs> right. This is I mean, everything, everything that you just explained Ustad yeah. Hamza, about what this woman has said. It just sounds like yeah. just typical sophistry to me. It's just like a bunch of words that, you know, really. Yep, yep, and, yep. and by the way, by the way, before we get to Nas on this, when people have a meaning, a, a greater meaning, anytime that you have a lesser meaning, you you increase its meaning by invoking the bigger picture. So when they say there's no meaning of life, but there's meaning in life. I say, no, when, when, when you have meaning in life, a small thing in life, the only way to give it value is by invoking the greater meaning of life, just like we as Muslims. Yeah. yeah, we as Muslims, we say, uh, when you do a small thing, like what's a, a small good deed? Pick up the garbage for your neighbor because she's old, her husband died, pick up her garbage, right? And take it back into her driveway, all right? Well, we, what do we always do? We say, Allah will be pleased with this. So we link this small little deed that is a grain of sand in the bigger picture of your day. And it's an atom in the bigger picture of the real world. So the bigger world. But no, we take that and we expand it only by invoking the greater meaning of Allah's existence. Allah watched and sees that. And a woman fed a dog. She was saved forever from Jahannam forever because she fed the dog. Right, Alex? Yeah, so I think I think that that returns to the point that I was making earlier about um, this concept of every act being a, a, a means of worshiping Allah. Mm. You know, one of the things that you hear sometimes from, uh, you know, uh, some atheists is stuff like, why would God care about X, right? Why does God, who created the entire universe, you believe in this supreme being, right? Why would, why would they care about who I have sex with or what I do with my, whether I collect interest on my bank account or things of this nature? And, you know, the truth is that at the individual act level, it doesn't matter. It's minuscule, it's irrelevant. What matters is why are you doing things and why are you refraining from doing things? Mm. And is it part of your worldview or is it part of your um, 
God consciousness, right? This is a part of you having being in a state of dhikr instead of a state of ghafla, mm-hmm. right? Where you're actually conscious of what you're doing, even the little acts or the big acts. And of course, you can make arguments about why riba is bad for society, why premarital sex is bad for society, why homosexuality is bad for society. And there are real life implications to these things. But at at, at the core, why does it matter what you do or don't do? It's because it means it's it's an expression of who you are in relation to Allah, whether you're worshiping Allah or whether you're disobeying Allah. So yeah, yeah. we don't have to have an answer to it, right? It could be that we don't have to know that riba is actually harmful for society for us to just obey Allah, right? So it returns to this having a purpose and our purpose in everything that we do. And this is really what it should be for for people at the, at the, uh, at the common man level is mm-hmm. you just have to know that every single thing that you do should be purposeful and that purpose should return to Allah. Because if it doesn't return to Allah, it's returning to something else that you're putting in place of Allah. Yeah, and, and a soundbite level of that is to say, there's no big and small to Allah. Why did you anthropomorphize God and think that God relates to big and small? That there, yeah. he, so, sure. so there's something really small. That means you must believe there's something really big for God, too big for God, right? And if you believe something's too small for God, there must be something too big for God. Right, logically speaking. So you've given, you put God in, in the universe uh, and give him a size, right? And you can measure deeds against that. So that's why we say there's no too big and too small for Allah. And Allah says in Quran, Allah, you slaughter something. Allah doesn't get the meat or the blood. You eat the meat and the blood goes into the ground, right? You drain the blood in a hole and you eat the meat. So what's it for Allah? It's the taqwa, the reason you did it. Naz, you had something to say? Yeah, I was just going to go back to uh, uh, Ustaz Hamza. Uh, you know, an atheist, um, a regular atheist, like a common man atheist would say, you know, that this deconstruction of value that you did, uh, Ustaz Hamza, is like a slippery slope. You know, uh, we, have to, we have to live life with value, right? On a practical level, we have to live life with value. So... And the slippery slope that you're pointing to that, you know, human life can't have any value if we just say that we're all just atoms. Nobody's going to do this, right? But here's the thing. People actually did do this. When the Japanese went to war uh, in World War II, there's a, this is explained in a book called, uh, um, I think, Zen at War, right? When the Japanese went to war, Buddhism doesn't justify violence, right? So the Japanese Buddhists had to justify violence somehow. And as we know that the Japanese were the most brutal uh, in World War II, even more brutal than the Nazis. Really? I never knew that. The Rape of Nanking, right? The person who wrote a book about that massacre, she killed herself because it just completely, you know, the the stuff that she found out. The way that the Japanese Zen Buddhists justified uh, that murder is okay and the killing of a non-Japanese is okay is the exact same argument that Osad Hamza just gave. Mm. If we actually think about it, there is no individuality, right? It's actually just atoms. And, you know, when I take a sword and cut somebody's head off, it's actually just atoms, you know, uh, going into other atoms. So at the end of the day, there's no individuality that got killed or things yes. like that, mm. right? It's the ex- exact same argument that they used. Mm. And, and, and here's the other thing. The Soviets did this as well. The Soviets, you know, they were materialists, the Bolsheviks, and they understood this very well. They understood that values are constructed. So they said that um, if you were a Soviet, sorry, not a Soviet, if you're a Bolshevik uh, and a communist, then morality is what the party defines, Mm. right? And if you show any inkling 
of a Christian morality, then you are betraying the party. That's woke. So what they would what they would take uh, these recruits to do, um, you know, when they were um, uh, hunting down the farmers and taking their land um, in the collectivization project, it's 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 amazing. They would take Soviet recruits and they would say, "Go to this farm, right, with these starving children, kill the kill the kid, right." And if you hesitated, then they knew that you had some Christian morality in you, mm. right? You were suspect. Wow. You know, you hesitated to kill the starving kid. So, you know, are you still Christian? Wow. Right? So basically, they understood this very well. And it's not what Ustad Hamza is saying is not a slippery slope fallacy. The only reason this isn't happening in our world, because it's already happened. Mm. Right? People, people, people saw, people experienced this firsthand, the, the suffering. Mm. That comes about because of this philosophy, right? So it's no joke, right? It's it's not just an academic discussion. That's so. deep, and that's uh, some pretty gruesome gangster stuff, right there. It's hardcore yeah. to actually act upon it, right? The I mean, gangsters do this all the time to act that you to to prove yourself to the gang. You got to do certain things like that. And I actually never knew that the Soviets actually did that with their recruits. Yeah, I mean, how how is it possible to to like? I mean, the Japanese, you know, they created bubonic plague bombs and dropped them into cities, wow. right? I mean, they, I mean, just the level of brutality, like how was it possible that human beings could do that to one another? You, you would yeah. think at least from the perspective of like mercy, right? Like okay, yeah. the city, just leave them alone, right? You conquer the city, everybody's, but no, right? You, you start putting plague bombs into the cities. You take hundreds of people and just, you know, shoot them. You torture them first and then shoot them, but you didn't need to torture them. So, uh, you know, when you can justify, right, when you can justify uh, doing all of these things using a philosophy, then guess what? It's just, uh, you know, all the gate floodgates are open. And just like Dostoevsky said, in the absence of God, everything is permitted. And people think this is a joke. Like atheists mm -hmm. actually think this is a joke, but actually it's not. It's not a joke. The Germans, and I'm sorry I'm going off on this because I, I feel very passionate about this topic, uh, you know, uh, before the period of World War II and World War I, Europe was basically humanist and they were abandoning religion. And Ustad Hamza, you know this very well. And the Germans were actually the most humanist people in Europe, right? They had the greatest scholars, you know, uh, Goethe and like Schiller and all these other people. And they were the most humanist people in Europe, right? And they were the most cultured people in Europe. If, and then <laughs> I forgot who said it. But somebody said, if the Germans, the most humanist people in Europe, could become Nazis, mm. and that's, that's the greatest example of the failure of atheism and humanism, right? And guess what? The, the, the Goebbels and, you know, the, the people that ran the concentration camps, in the morning, they would go and, you know, gas a bunch of Jews. And then the night, they would go and have a cup of tea and listen to Beethoven yeah. right? mm. and discuss, discuss Shakespeare. This was the level of... <laughs> so so don't don't come at me and say that uh that all of this is just fiction and you know ustad hamza's argument is just like a slippery slope and this will never happen it yeah. it happened it happened and we need to be very careful about that ustad hamza yeah and i would deny that it's a slippery slope don't don't just because they've come up with a logical fallacy doesn't mean it's applied in this case we're not saying that oh, if you believe in this and act accordingly, it's going to lead to this. We're not saying that. We're saying your beliefs are not consistent with your other beliefs that you believe you have value. That's what we're saying. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more of a, 
it's more of a we're showing that it's non sequitur it doesn't logically follow from physicalism or philosophical naturalism that your belief that we have ultimate value actually even makes sense also the comment that brother Ilyas was making about you know why would someone care if i'm like doing something at home why would god care well that's the whole point the point is just to now close the circle here allah dignified man mm. right yeah. allah dignified us this is the whole point so you have a being a transcendent being laysa kamithlihi shay creation is distinct and disjoint from the creator allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is maximally perfect allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is absolutely transcendent and he has the totality of knowledge and wisdom he created us and he's saying you have dignity right and that's not subjective because by definition allah is objective something to be subjective it means there is something outside of him that that puts limitations there's nothing outside inverted commas of allah that places limits on him right so from that point of view whatever allah commands or says about these issues is objective and that gives us a basis mm. for why we believe we have ultimate value allah dignified human beings and it's not dignifying to do these actions and it's mm. not dignifying to reject allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also to uh, deny his commands and reject his commands but what is very was another important point especially when it comes to atheists and about this existential issue is about truth itself you're arguing you're saying god doesn't exist okay is that true that's true okay how do you get do you, why is it important for you to follow truth mm. of course all right where do you get that value truth from in this physicalist world i want to find i want to find yeah. it you know especially when empiricists say it's just science and empiricism and touch and feel okay i want to know using science and empiricism and touch and feel the value of truth find it for me where is it is an, is, is an apple on a tree somewhere i mean where i want to know where it is so they can't even justify the very fact that they value truth mm -hmm. right even as a moral value i did an academic research paper on this there's a new book that's come out in 2020 by uh, stingle and I forgot the other guy's name now anyway it's called evolutionary moral realism 2020 and i wanted to respond to saying A, a new argument that's coming out and they're basically saying that you could ground objective moral values in biology right and my argument was well your argument cannot ground truth as a moral value anyway there's no point to talk we could unpack that yeah. another time but the point here is um the even the idea of truth you know why is this conversation important to you why is truth important to you you can't get that from your physicalist world view so that's another thing that has uh that really agitates them as well so hopefully but by the way and this is very important we have to come across with hikmah and rahmah when we're articulating these issues because if you come across like the way we're talking to each other now it could be seen as oh my god this guy's too passionate he's too maybe sounds aggressive and he's you know obviously you have to be authentic with people but at the same time we have to be sensitive to their nature because the sunnah is as you know much better than me that you individualize everybody so mm -hmm. you have you have broad categories in the quran like mujrim and munafiq etc but that's primarily for you to see if you're one of them so you can mm. fix up but also if you look at the sunnah it's to individualize every human being they have their own moral context and you treat them as a blank canvas right yeah. and that's why in islam we don't have we don't otherize and dehumanize right because if you follow the sunnah on this issue that you individualize each person you see their context and you treat them Um, uh, with that respect so 
And obviously, obviously in the Quran, Allah says in chapter 41, verse 34, good and evil are not the same, repelled by that which is better. And between two people, this hatred will turn to intimate friendship. The Arabic word repel here is not followed by a direct object. So it could mean repel anything by that which is better. And the ulama say what is better is acting more virtuous and acting more beautiful, right? So when we engage with people, obviously there's times to be positively assertive, for sure. But when we engage with people, we have to be empathy, rahma, ha have be sincere to them through your sincerity to Allah, because you want that you want to be committed to that person's goodness and guidance. Famous hadith: Love for your brother, what you love for yourself, is in the Arba'in. We know what now we said. Amaliki scholar Ibn Taqiq al Eid. He also mm -hmm. says this is this is your human brother. Mm -hmm. You must be committed to the well-being of all people, which means you want goodness for them and guidance for them. There are other hadith. I don't mention Akhihi brother. It mentions Linnas and it's Sahih mm. in Tarikh al Kabir. Narrated by Bukhari. So, what does it mean? The Muslim must be committed to the well-being of others. So we must listen with the intention to understand, listen out for their context, and relate to them in such a way that we can plant the seed in their heart and mind. So I don't want people listening to this podcast and you know we're using you know we're, we're passionate about this and we're laying a smackdown on ideas that now they're going to translate that to the normal average person who's mm. really. I, I listened to a lecture by Abdul Hakim Rad. Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad recently it was mm. called I forgot what it's called but it was on mercy it was actually very profound mm. it was very profound and he was saying look you know people's idea of who they are and you know is all about nafs and all of this stuff and he was basically saying that people have been imprisoned by these false ideologies so we have to reach out to them with rahmah because they just don't know mm -hmm. they've been so blinded so the primary approach is Rahma. But at the same time, we know Musa alayhi salam, he spoke to Fir'aun layyinan nicely. But when you follow through with the verses, then he got a bit more assertive. So there are contexts. We have a moral context tradition. It's like virtue ethics. You have to base your assessment on these things based on your relation to that person and the context. But as a default, you have to have lots of Rahma, a lot of empathy, and try whoever's listening to this podcast to engage with these ideas in a way that you can plant the seed in the heart and mind. And that sometimes means you just have to listen more. It sometimes may mean that you might have to say, you know, different things in a different way. I want to, uh, I wanted to say that just in case pe pe people pick up the wrong kind of approach from well, the way I've been speaking. No, that's a great point. And before I get to Alex and Moeen's point, I just wanted to say that we actually, I just had a conversation with somebody and recorded it as a podcast. He's a youth. And he brought up the point and he brought up the point that there are now uh, things that we attack, such as same sex marriages. He said, now there's an entire generation that they're reaching high school that were the children of such arrangements, right? So a college student that obviously there wasn't maybe not same sex marriage, but the two women living together and they had adopted a girl and she's the child of that right and now she's like 18 and he's saying and 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 there are some controversies between how this stuff is taught in schools so we had a long conversation on how a discussion on a a, a thing that we used to bash and smash right but now as the rubber hits the road and there are innocent people attached to those things now your discourse is going to your style is going to change mm. the content won't change the content will change, but the padding has to change because there are yes. innocent people associated with that. So when I, for example, if I want to bash paganism, right? Hypothetically. Well, what happens if, you know, a Hindu 
convert to Islam. You say, hey, I'm bringing my mom to the mosque today. Do you think you're going to stand on the yeah. minbar and bash paganism, right? All these elephant men and, and uh, eight arms on a lady and blah, 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 right? It's just not, it's not the smart thing. to. It's common sense. So that's the one thing I wanted to say. And unless, Moeen, Alex, you can go in a different direction, but I just wanted to throw this in there about the self-contradictory. Can empiricism be justified empirically? Yeah, I wasn't going to go in a different yeah. direction. I actually wanted to <clears throat> to piggyback off of, you know, your guys' thoughts here is, yeah. so I, I found, you know, especially over the last, you know, 10 years uh, that what a lot of people are missing is love, right? A lot of people are missing is, is you know, just rahma and mercy. And here's the hard truth. And, and I know people, this sounds a little bit rude. I know I'm probably going to get called out for this, but look. The hard truth is that a lot of these people who, you know, are on about atheism, they feel salty because they got picked last for their team. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like they, you know, they, they, this is the hard truth. Okay. You know, they, they have, you know, some, some moment of childhood, some, some, where there was a lack of love. Right. And they, and they feel salty about that. That's, that's why, you know, they, this, this, their entire being is, you know, just, just, just how do I, you know, get rid of this salt that I've accumulated over the years <laughs> and, and all these people require and what most people require is love, right? And, and, and the, our dawa our approach to things, our approach to community has to be filled with love, rahman, mercy. Like I know uh, Nazmo has been putting together you know, the book on theodicy. And, and we went back and forth, back and forth about, you know, how are we going to approach this subject? Because we could talk about the problem of evil. We could talk about theodicy. We could talk about all these philosophical arguments, but nobody cares about those things, right? It, it's, it's not that they don't care, right? It, intellectually, people care, but nobody's going to really take them on until, you know, they really understand the, the human emotion behind these things, right? The love that, that, that comes from understanding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is what he brought to the deen is, and, and what he brought to his, his sahaba and, and to, to us is love, right? It, because if you just brought, you know, aqaid arguments, you know, you're, you're not going to get somebody to Islam. It's, it's really tough, right? But until you, that's where the Messenger Sallallahu comes in, right? The, the, the Prophet Sallallahu brings that, that aspect of, of love, mercy, and rahmah that just, you know, pure mm -hmm. aqidah arguments and, and philosophy are not going to bring to the table. Yeah. You know what, Moin, the, uh, the, you're 100% right. But you know who the beneficiary is of these types of books, like the Odyssey book? It's going to be that 17, 18, 19-year-old Muslim. He's already a Muslim. He just needs to see that this makes sense to him, and he needs to answer those questions. So it's the people who, yeah, there's, there's yeah, it's the people mainly who have buy-in already that need to be supported. Just sure, give it sure. some strength. I mean, Alex. even even Ustad Hamza's book, right? I mean, it's uh, it's extremely valuable, right? It's yeah. not that's not to say it's not. So don't don't get me wrong there. Yeah, no, but you you are right that someone who's way on the outside, people are brought in from the outside to the inside, usually by love or conquest, right? <laughs> <laughs> Alex. Um. Yeah. No, I don't have anything to add. Okay. Nas. I was going to say, uh, I agree with Moeen on this. Um, you know, we act as if, you know, sometimes uh, maybe you guys can criticize me for this, but sometimes we as Muslims act as if we're uh, immune to a lot of these questions, right? And yes, that's true if you're raised in a good community, if you have good parents, righteous righteous parents, uh, righteous friends, and so on. Um, that's, that's great, right? 
but from what I've seen, a lot of these questions come from Muslims. I mean, in my experience, right? What, what's the point of my life? You know, why do I have to deal with my parents like this, right? Why am I, you know, uh, why don't I have the opportunities that these other people have? You know, why do I need to follow these rules that make my life harder? Right? I mean, th those are genuine questions, you know, and uh, we might say, no, those are not genuine questions. But from a person who doesn't know the Islamic tradition or have experienced that love of Rasulullah and uh, the, the, uh, the sweetness of knowledge, right? Those questions are just like, you know, they see Islam as some type of imposition from without uh, preventing me from playing six hours of video games, right? Uh, and so my, my strategy, at least, is that, again, just like Ustad Hamza said, reaching out to the fitrah. When we reach out to the fitrah and we take these questions seriously, people respond, right? And especially when we're sincere about it. For example, you know, we, we criticize uh, people for not thinking, right? Like, it's, it's hard for people to think. You know, when you start, for example, you're just living life, you uh, go nine to five job, or you work at Dunkin' Donuts, you come home, you, uh, you know, you're apathetic, you play video games. Next day, you, you keep doing the same thing, right? Now, as soon as somebody starts questioning your life, as soon as somebody says, what are you doing with your life, man? Like that opens up chaos, right? It, suddenly the things that you took for granted, like it's, it's like, oh snap, the, the ground that I'm standing on is gone, right? That opens up chaos, that opens up snakes, all sorts of things. And you don't wanna face that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, they don't want to think, like it's actually hard to think, right? And they think that where they will end up is actually worse than where they are. Mm -hmm. And what we have to do is show them actually know where you will end up, right? It's actually better than where you are. Mm -hmm. And you know, at this, this is the truth of all the mythological stories, all the hero stories uh, of, of human history that the treasure is where the dragon is, right? So the places that you actually fear to go, that's where your greatest flourishing is. So thinking and speaking about the meaning of life and questioning if your life has any meaning, like that's a good starting point because it will inshallah eventually lead you to um, something that you will find uh, you know, a greater meaning and a greater love. Mm -hmm. But I think there's, sorry. Go ahead. I think there's more to it than that as well because a lot of these questions sometimes are not even intellectual but they use these questions as a veil to hide some psychodynamic issue that's going on. So what I've realized a lot of Muslim youth or even so-called university students is that they have a terrible relationship with the community and a terrible relationship with their parents. And that has created a kind of psychological issue where they're using these questions that to be honest, if they were to ask themselves those questions, they could answer them themselves very easily. Yeah. But they're using them to basically hide a particular issue and i've seen this in so many apostasy cases because we do one-to-ones and and and, and mm. stuff like that and what you realize a lot of the time it's got nothing to do with intellectual arguments usually right yeah for example and that's what we need to deal with because we're responsible as a community because look what what develops the social norm there are two two main things informational social influence and normative social influence informational social influence is i i have a need to feel certain if I don't get my certainty from my subgroup, like the Muslim community, like the imams not asking my question, I don't have people who are talking to me, I'm going to go to the dominant group, the secular guys, liberal guys, and I'm going to adopt their views, even if I disagree with them, because their group just gives me some kind of certainty, or they're giving me some kind of quasi-certainty. 
So we have a responsibility to answer questions and be with people and connect with people and not to shun them away. The other one, which is very important, is called normative social influence, which is I have a need to belong as a human being. If I don't get my belonging from my subgroup, and that's why what Sheikh said earlier about the, the halaqa, about the dhikr circles, the one-to-ones, do you not even have to think, just be with us, right? So critical. You'd be so shocked how critical it is. That's why this kind of neoliberalism, individualism is a huge thing we have to battle in our communities because if we become fragmented, it's game over, right? Mm. So normative social influence, you have a need to belong. If you don't get that belonging with your subgroup, the Muslim community, because maybe you're, you're, a bit in, you're, a bit, you're a bit quirky, they don't like the way you dress, or they judge you as some kind of modern liberal Muslim or this, that, and the other. Anyway, the point is, if they don't get their belonging with the subgroup, they'll go to the dominant group. Mm. And this is what psychologists say. They'll go to the dominant group, atheists, secularists, irreligious people, whatever, and they would adopt their beliefs even if they don't believe in them. Mm. Just to belong. So we have, a, we have a huge responsibility as a community not only to give certainty and be approachable to youth, but also to create that sense of belonging. And this is why we have no choice, but you know the tolerance boundaries we had when we said this guy is like orthodox mainstream Muslim? Those kind of, a lot of those were just superimposed by a misunderstanding of the tradition anyway, because they they think the Sahaba were all the same, for God's sake. Yeah? <laughs> like, what's wrong with the people, man? Um, so, you know, we have to have a, a, a proper understanding of, you know, our community. Yes, we have our red lines, but within that is all rahmah and love and don't worry and, you know, if you dress differently, just come on board, you, you know. You know, this is this is Islam. It's about making things easy. And re- referring to what brother mentioned earlier, Allah says about the Prophet it was out of Allah's mercy that you were kind-hearted and soft-hearted with them. If you were harsh-hearted, they would have run away from you. The Sahaba would have run away. Right. We're talking about a group of people. We're talking about a group of people that would pick up swords. They were equivalent of some village in Oldham in North England. They picked up some sticks and they took over the whole of Europe. Such bravery. We're talking about these type of people, right? Mm. And, and Allah is saying that if you weren't nice to them, they would have run away. Do you know what I mean? So subhanAllah, so it's so important to, you know, yeah, that love and mercy is extremely, extremely important, you know? Yeah, Stan Hamza took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say that this is, this is the real problem. You know, you didn't hear this kind of question from teenagers 150 years ago in the Muslim world, right? Mm. And it's not because those teenagers were less intelligent or less intellectually curious. It's because they weren't being, they weren't having the same social problems that kids today are having. Um, you see these, you see these things happening, um, you know, and this is not to point fingers, but there's a house, there's a problem at home. There's a problem where the father saying something to you doesn't carry the weight that it should carry. Mm. If your Muslim father says you put, we pray because we, because we're Muslim, or maybe the father's not praying, whatever the, the issue at home is, there's, there's a dynamic that's, that's causing these problems. And it's not, that these kids are reading too too much too many uh, challenging books or listening to too many difficult lectures they're turning to that because they already have a problem like Stan Hamza was saying so yeah. i think that i think it's a it's a broader picture and what we have to address is you know the challenges of being a muslim in in a minority status right in a country for people like me and Hamza we can't help it right we were born in these countries we weren't born to muslim families this is this is our but people who've made the choice to come to these countries and raise their families really have to make that choice consciously while thinking about what it's going to mean for their children, what it's going to mean for their grandchildren, whether they're in two generations, their family will even still be Muslim. Yeah. These are things that people haven't considered, but really ha- should have and should start considering now if it matters to them. 
I mean, it might not matter to you. Yeah, one thing that I, I've always, I've seen that that helps a lot is, especially I know one thing that I remember watching and listening to Ustad Hamza's videos back in college. And one thing he did that, I, that I've noticed, you know, strong, strong individuals today, you know, Dr. Shadi, Alex, you guys yourself, is give honor and ghayra to the deen. And a lot of people need that. Right. Mm. Well, because they're really not looking for all of these intellectual arguments and all these things. All they're really looking for is love and, you know, someone who, who gives ghayra and honor to the deen. And I think that's that's one of the main reasons why a lot of people listening, listen to our, our podcast. And I know it's one, of, it's one of the reasons why I love being on here, because being around strong, intellectually minded you know, and emotionally grounded Muslims gives people strength. Right. And, and when you have that and when you when you're around people like that, right, then all of these like, for example, I don't care about atheist arguments anymore. They, they don't even bother me. Like, I don't even read them anymore because it's just a waste of my time. Right. It's like somebody comes to me. It's like, oh, you want to read this? It's not really, man. I have zero doubts in the theme. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, OK, sure, I, I can read them and learn them. And it's like, you know, there's, you know, the, there, there's better people for that and who can do that better. But it's just I, what people are really looking for is just, you know, safety, security, and love. And, and once they have that, that's why in, 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 in older societies, you use, you have this like pack mentality, right? And, and you have like this older, older clan member, or, you know, this, this village head, and, and you had people going to the masjid and people doing these things. And you had these strong personalities, whether it's men or women, that, and, and that's what, that's why you had less atheism. That's why you had less people going off the dean because they, they mm-hmm. had this feeling of society and community and, and tribe. strength and a tribe, right? Even uh, that still exists. I mean, if you're, if you want to be a politician, right, and you're in the Democratic Party, you have to accept the entire package. Right. You can't go heretical and become and say, I think everyone should have a gun, right? You can't say that, right? Uh, so you got to be, um, you have to accept the entire dogma. Right. And then they want to, they have to convince themselves of these points, right? But in reality is, I don't think that just by coincidence, every single Democrat has the same major views, right? I, I don't think that's the case. There is a lot of people who probably privately don't have certain views, but because they need to the alliance of the tribe, right? The Democratic Party, they say, okay, we'll take those views. Right. Nas? Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna respond to um, Brother Alex and uh, Ustad Hamza. Um, people, meaning is a biological impulse. We need meaning, right? If without it, it's like water, we're gonna drown. And if we don't get that meaning from our social structure, and most, a lot of Muslims, especially those that I'm around, they don't get that from their families, right? And okay, so what do you do? What are you gonna do? And uh, the closest Muslim community is not around here. So what do you do? Well, well okay, they'll turn to atheism or they'll turn to something, uh, something other to mask those issues. But my point is that the cure to your problem is not in those other things. It's actually in Islam. To actually truly understand Islam and internalize it, it will make your situation better, not worse. Right. And that's the whole point. Right. And I mean, for me, for example, um, maybe you guys don't know this, but I wasn't a very social person, but learning Islam forced me to be social. Right. It forced me to be social. I had to go to Juma prayer every every Friday. Right. Um, I had to not that I wasn't before, but it was on and off. But I had to go. Right. And I had to meet other people and smile at them. 
right? I couldn't just pull them all. Uh, I had to, you know, during the Qurbani, I had to go get the meat and mm -hmm. see uh, and, you know, see all that stuff and be connected with nature. So the Islamic framework is actually providing you the things that you need to build that meaning that you so desperately want, mm -hmm. that all these other things won't give you. So, and, and that, was, that was my point, that even if your community, your, your uh, like your family or your friends, they're not giving you that proper demonstration of Islam or love, right? It, that's not a reason to abandon Islam because a proper understanding of Islam will give you that. And, and it'll connect you to people who you, you can never replace your family, but it Absolutely. will connect you to people who fill in what your parents can't fill in. And I, I always think that marriage is a healing process to both parties insofar that no two parents are perfect. They might give you some, they may mess you up in a certain way, right? But usually your spouse helps you fix these problems, right? And any mm. empty spot that you had in your, your, your disposition, they sort of make up for it. They show you, hold on, you're very you know, much into this. You have a gap in this. They're all about truth and you get, get the truth and justice. They're not lovable, right? You need to become a little bit more lovable, right? Uh, so this is what marriage does to people. So, and, and, and Islamic community marriage, I mean, there are a lot of Muslims that can't get married. That's true. But compare the rate of young, most people who get married, who are religious Muslims at what age do they get married and how many of them get married versus the opposite, right? Yeah. Of those traits. So yeah, not saying I we don't have issues, but we definitely have the advantage. I think it's important to also understand that I agree with what the brother's saying. But if we address an intellectual question and we know it's a social psychodynamic question, then we're mm -hmm. never going to solve the problem. That's the yeah. basic point of that issue. Yeah. Yep. I remember a Pakistani atheist who did quantum physics came up to me. I think he did quantum physics. He did a master's in it. And he said to me, oh, your argument for God's existence doesn't make sense because causality doesn't make sense out of the universe. I, 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 I've addressed this in my book. I, did, I don't think I wrote a book at that time, but, and, you know, I knew some of the philosophy behind it and I didn't address him in that way though. I just said to him, look, you know, from experience, I gathered that there's something else going on or something. I said, look, what do you mean by causality? Hmm. And I opened the Pandora's box and metaphysics. They haven't ironed out what is the nature of the causal link in Western philosophy. Anyway, he says, I don't know. Right. Hmm. And I said, isn't it very interesting, bro, that you've used a key word in a sentence to deny Allah and you don't know what that word means? And I said, wow. look, let's sit down. So we had a more brotherly type of conversation. And he said to me, look, I, I didn't feel connected to Allah. I came from a secular family. That's from what I remember, right? Another example is someone who was doing the coding for a famous, uh, famous uh, social media company, yeah, Facebook. And he, we were talking about consciousness. I did that for my master's, like my dissertation on the philosophy of the mind. So we we're talking about, you know, can AI become human? This, that, and the other. I said, yeah, I reckon AI can be fully human. And I tried to reject that by saying, no, there's a difference between strong and weak AI. Referred to Professor John, John Sell, the Chinese room experiment, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I say to him, what's going on? Why are you denying God? He said, oh, you know, God has human-like attributes. They sound human. I was like, hold on a second. Don't you know the Islamic tradition? Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I sensed the logical contradiction, the essence, right? Because he was willing for 
AI to have full consciousness, mm. but he had a problem the other way around. Um, and I was like, hold on. And, and really, Kofor would always contradict itself. Kofor yeah. will always contradict itself. So when I noticed that in the dialogue, I'm like, okay, there's a psychological issue going on. So I tried to empathize and I referred it to me. I said, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with my dad when I, when I became Muslim. And I gave him a bit of a nice story. And I said, you know, when I realized that, I got awakened to it and I fixed it and things was much better. Anyway, and, as, and then I slowly tried to turn it to him and say, maybe that's the same case with you. This guy was like kind of skinny, passive guy, softly spoken. The minute I do that, he stands up crying. How wow. dare you? Like, wallahi, uh, brother Sutur Ahmed, if you know of him, he does uh, evolution stuff. He, he was there in the room as well. It's as if someone pressed a button or pulled the lever and someone else came out. And then we found out more information from his mother that he had issues with father figures and authorities. Mm. Like, you know, um, I'm not saying it's always the case, but if I address, for example, a philosopher who questioned to him, it, he would have brought me another question and another question yeah. and another question. Yeah. So you, we have to go to the deep roots and so, many times it's psychodynamic and social that we need to deal with. Yeah. And that's why it's so 100%. critical. It's so critical for the du'at on social media to be human because that a lot of people are getting meaning from that fake social bubble now. Yeah. And if they're seeing this guy attacks this guy, this guy attacks this guy. Like recently, I got this video from a so-called chef, right? With all due respect, I'm not going to answer him ever. He's got no mm. adab and I think he's misconstrued what I'm saying and I don't have time to go through his stuff. And frankly, if he's come across that way, with all due respect, you have to deserve to have a nice conversation with someone you can't knock on someone's door then throw an egg in their face yani. yeah and you're supposed to come from a prestigious university and you and you've got a, the adab of someone that is not in line why by the way chef why are a lot of like you know and this is my experience and it's not a stereotype a lot of people who study from the likes of medina or whatever they have a bad adab man don't they do a purification <laughs> of the heart science there i'm not saying this to cast anyone yeah yeah because yeah? i got a lot of love from People from Al-Azhar, from Medina, from different places, from Alexandria. A lot of love, a lot of connections. Mm -hmm. But when people come from these type of institutions, a lot of them, it's like, isn't there like a Tesquil to Nafs course that they have to go through? Or, <laughs> and why, why are they like that? This this Urjub, this, yeah. this Kibr, and this like, I'm right. You, you know, how can you say to someone that you have like compounded ignorance and you're this yeah. and that? Have a conversation <laughs> with someone. Yeah. So just, I don't get you what, don't, you, what I don't you think you understand. I don't think you understand that when someone is part of the only group of people that are going to be saved on the day of judgment, they can do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> Just them is, and right? their sheikh and a few other students. Yeah. Us, the rest of us are for the hellfire. They can you treat us like is, the this is, this firewood this is, we are. Yeah, <laughs> this is so not in line with the prophetic approach, especially in a contemporary context, because it's just pushing people away. Yeah. And, uh, and the du'at online, they, we have to be more mature. We have to show empathy. Uh, nuance, intellectual and emotional empathy. Uh, we have to repel by that which is better. But at the moment, that's just not happening. It's about winning an argument. Yeah. What's the famous hadith? I think it's in Abu Dawood. You're guaranteed a house in Jannah or, uh, or a palace or a house in Jannah if you give up, and the Arabic word here is useless arguments and debates, even yeah. if you're in the right. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Even what if you're in the, imagine that? if you're, imagine, yeah, imagine if you're wrong too. You know right. what's funny? Oh, but bro, it's our manhaj. You're a public yeah. person. We have to refute you. And I was like, when? It's like <laughs> saying to someone when they're angry. It's like saying to someone when they're angry, don't be angry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, 
it's like putting a brick in a uh, tumble dryer or washing yeah. machine. If if the means and the medium that you're using is not conducive to your objective, then mm-hmm. don't use it. Yeah. And like a lot of people, there was a spat with some big dot recently, or mm. people online, and I was like, if the medium of your nasiha or yeah. your or you're taking to account or you're commanding the good and forbidding the evil, yet you've never spoken to your neighbor before about Islam. Subhanallah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all of this commanding the good, forbidding yeah. the evil. If the way you're doing it and the means you're using, you know it's not going to work mm-hmm. in the ultimate objectives. Yeah. Why are you doing it? It means there's an ego problem. 100%. And it's the Trump effect too, that feuds, <laughs> <laughs> feuds get ratings. And that's how Trump got elected. Feuds it's get ratings. And I think without people, matrix. yeah, I think without people realizing it, they absorbed it. They, but they use it in a field. You can do this with dog eat dog world. But in a field where Allah's watching, of course, Allah's watching everything, but you're representing Allah's deen. Yeah, of course. You're not just, you know, my car salesman versus his car salesman or my sneakers versus his sneakers. So I'm going to have a feud to get attention. You know, like LeVar Ball, actually, LeVar Ball is actually friendly about it, right? When he does these feuds, you could tell he's smiling, right? And he's laughing. But, you know, you guys know about LeVar Ball? No, yeah. no, no. Okay. So LeVar Ball is this some, he, he's basically his sons play basketball. And he promotes them and he promotes his brand by saying outrageous things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I can beat Michael Jordan one-on-one, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and my son's effect on the L.A. Lakers was reminded me of Magic Johnson, right? But you can tell he's smiling, right? So he's actually friendly about it. He says outrageous things. But the Trump effect and this whole new style of marketing that outrageous claims and big feuds, okay, is what's going to suck up attention and then you dominate the discourse because everyone will be talking about you you and your issue and without realizing it they'll all be talking about your subject just like trump when he says mexico will pay for the wall he got everyone talking about how will they pay for the wall right and why will they and everyone's talking about walls it's just and and people don't know that one of his advisors is a basically a kid with a bachelor's degree 25 years old out of new jersey who came up with the idea because so, it's it's man, visual, <laughs> it's mm. visual. You can visualize a wall, right? And that's it. It was such a dumb idea, but because it was so outrageous, and he attacked the Mexicans, it attracted everyone's attention. And these duats, whether they realize it or not, they're using this method. And what they should do is think twice that not every method and every following you built are you building it on taqwa. Yeah, it's almost like saying I'm going to build a financial empire. Fi fi I'm going to use, but I'm using riba. Yeah, Chef, if someone emails me sincerely and says this is for your well-being, I would yeah. take it so seriously. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I've, I hopefully I've developed to a degree that I want feedback and I want this. But you have to be nice. There's a genuine, genuine yeah. it's like civility, you know, be yeah, civil. Yeah. And I've had people who really disagree with me and they've told me privately mm-hmm. and it changed me. SubhanAllah, it changes you. It transforms you when someone is there and they with adab and with humility and with love and with commitment to your well-being and you feel that commitment that they're committed to your well-being you have no choice but to transform and accept what they say is true you have to reciprocate their kindness yeah because they they went out of the way out of their way to make you feel decent about your about yourself overall so you feel like i have to reciprocate his efforts right uh, yeah. and being considerate I think part of the problem is, you know, what Ustad Hamza said earlier about how these, these, uh, when Allah talks in the Quran about munafik and, right, and 
that that's something for us to be self-reflective and apply to ourselves mm -hmm. instead of taking it and applying it outwardly and then applying it to other Muslims yeah. and other Muslims that are clearly doing, trying to do good in life, mm -hmm. right? Try, trying to benefit the Ummah and trying to benefit humanity. And you apply the worst descriptions when it really is just there for you to check yourself and make sure that you're not falling into that category. Yeah. And I you mean, know what's interesting? Yeah. No, go ahead. What's interesting is they'll say, yes, you won't listen, but we're doing it to, to save and correct your ideas to the Ummah. Yeah. You know what's very interesting? That still doesn't work because if that person has created all of this mess and they have lots of following, then if you're really sincere, you do whatever it takes to engage with that person in a positive way so you could transform them so they have greater impact. So yeah. even, a, even that response is not a sincere response. But I want to come back on the topic of the youth. Some of our youth sometimes, they don't understand the tradition because they have a transactional relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, and this leads back to the idea of why Allah is worthy of worship. So they, I've had this, I heard someone say, you know, I used to pray five times a day or whatever the case may be. I didn't do well in my exams, so I stopped praying. And this, there is a subconscious, especially amongst certain cultural Muslim communities, they have a transactional relation with Allah. So Allah gives you wife, house, car, job exams you give him salah it's like a hidden shirk that you're both equal business partners allah gives you something you give him something in return and he'll give you something back with some interest mm -hmm. this for me is one of the spiritual diseases in our community the first thing we need to address is we need to firstly revive understanding why allah is worthy of worship in our homes yes we focus on fiqh a lot but what was the basis? What's the raison d'etre for fiqh? What's the reason of existence for fiqh? It's how to worship Allah. And that has an assumption that you know Allah is worthy of worship. And the Quran came down to actually solve that problem or, or announce Allah's uh, reality to mankind that he's the only deity worthy of worship. To be adored, to be loved, to be obeyed, to, to, to be known, right? To, to direct all your acts of worship to him alone. That needs to be revived at home because we have a very do's and don'ts, ethnocentric identity version of Islam in our communities, which sometimes is quite powerful because it forms an identity. But in our, in our cultural and contemporary context, we need to teach our children, who is Allah? Mm. Why, why must we love Allah? Why must he be obeyed? Why must he be known? Why must we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? If you get that right at home, then when people face calamities, then it won't affect them that much because they know their worship wasn't based on a transactional relationship. Mm. Yeah? It mm. was based on primarily, yes, yes, because Allah gives us things too, blessings, gratitude, etc. But primarily Allah is worthy of worship because of who He is. 100%. Allah is worthy of worship because of who He is. We extensively, we praise things by virtue of their limited and flawed and imperfect attributes. For example, mm -hmm. Khabib, when he tapped out that chicken, McGregor, we're like, wow, Allahu Akbar, well done. When we hear poetry of Iqbal, when the famous poet of the East, when he said, this one sajda that you find too difficult frees you from a thousand frustrations. Mm. Wow, wow, wow. Amazing poetry, bravo. If you like soccer and you like Messi or Ronaldo, they score a great goal. You're like, wow, what a great goal. If you like ice hockey, and I don't know what you guys do in ice hockey, but I don't know. Someone, <laughs> someone got a stick and you smashed it over the guy's head. Wow. Yes. yes. <laughs> right? All of that stuff. Yeah. We praise these people by virtue of their attributes. Yet they have limited attributes. It's not maximally perfect and they're flawed in some way. And they don't even benefit us directly in any way. 
this is not an analogy. You can't make an analogy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's an a fortiori argument. By greater reason, how must we extensively praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by virtue mm. of who he is? SubhanAllah. He is the powerful. He is al-alim, the knowing, al-hakim. He is al-wudud, al-latif, and so on and so forth. And his names and attributes are maximally perfect and they're transcendent. Take, for example, Allah being al-wudud, coming from the Arabic word wud, which means a loving that is giving. Allah's love transcends any known love, even a mother's love. Because a mother, she needs to love. It completes her. Allah mm. is al-ghani. He's al-samad. He doesn't require any completion, yet he loves. So imagine how pure his love is. Allahu Akbar. How can you not want to love someone like that, right? It's a being like that. Mm -hmm. So Allah is worthy of worship by virtue of who he is. That's the first thing we need to realize. The second thing is obviously gratitude and blessings but what type of gratitude and blessings right mm. we think we should be grateful for the car and the house and the money no there are fundamental things that you can't even be grateful for so let, i'll wrap up on this allah says in the quran you cannot enumerate the blessings of allah individually count the blessings of allah take a single heartbeat and i wrote this in the book if you don't have any heartbeats you're dead it's one of the physical asbab causes allah uses to keep your life if i told you you have 10 heartbeats left but in order to get 10,000 heartbeats, you have to give me all of your wealth. You will throw all of your wealth at me, which shows the priceless nature of a single heartbeat. So here's the challenge. I want you to enumerate and count every single heartbeat you've had in a lifetime so far. SubhanAllah. Impossible. Because for the first two, three years, you can't count. You've got a backlog. Backlog. When you're sleeping, you can't count. You've got a backlog. Now let's change this slightly. I want you to be individually grateful, alhamdulillah, for every single heartbeat you've had in your lifetime. SubhanAllah. You know, you can't. And you know what's interesting? You don't earn, own, or deserve a heartbeat. You can't even create a fly. So you're giving you're being you're give you've been given something that's free, priceless, yeah. and you don't earn, own, or deserve it, and you can't even be grateful for it. And if you could hypothetically be grateful for it individually at every single heartbeat, you would have to be grateful for your ability to be grateful. There'll be an infinite regress of gratitude. Mm. And it's so powerful that and imagine we internalize this in our homes. Forget everything else. I can't be grateful for a single heartbeat. So I say to my family, anything above a heartbeat is a bonus. If we all really internalize this, would we be petty about what mm. this guy said about me or what she said or about inheritance issues or what this wife said to that wife? What lie would become a petty community because of a lack of gratitude. And, gratitude? and gratitude is a key to worship. That's why... You know, we have to understand gratitude in a proper context, not because, you know, yeah. I have new Versace jeans, I should be grateful. Yes, you should be grateful. But there is something so fundamental that we can't even be grateful for totally. It's perspective. Absolutely. It's a completely new perspective. It's a it's a radical perspective shift for a lot of people. Yeah. SubhanAllah. That was beautiful. And was beautiful. I think that we should actually not continue because that was <laughs> on point exactly for what we were wanted to bring that second half was to be about, you know, why is Allah worthy of worship and these attributes and this idea. And what we hope is that people could listen to this. And if they have family members in their house, if they have dependents that they can influence is to try to let's look a little bit more at Allah himself. Even Islam is a wonderful thing too, but what's the most, why is it wonderful? It's because who created it, right? It's a great path, but who, what's it a path to? And who made the path? And that's and if we get good at that, if we could focus a lot of our energies on the sifats of Allah and how to worship, draw near to him by dua, by dhikr, by uh, contemplating his names, we get so deep 
that even the family problems that drive many youth off the cliff and many adults off the cliff, it can be responded to by a warehouse of Iman and trust in Allah Ta'ala and understanding of, you know, that even good and bad is from Allah Ta'ala as a test. And if you have the mindset that this is for my embitterment, it's from Allah, therefore it's going to be for good. Allah, there's a hadith, a beautiful hadith. Uh, uh, I'm in the opinion of my slave. If he uh, 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 thinks good, it's his. If he thinks evil, it's his, right? Because really that reflects your opinion of Allah, not of the event. It's your opinion of Allah. You believe that Allah is, is being bad to you, right? You've trapped yourself because things that happen are only happening from Allah Ta'ala because he permitted them to happen to you. And if you believe that he's the generous, the wise, he knows better, he knows best, right? And he's also the just, justice will come eventually then that's the, your reaction to those events and you interpret those events in that light. And so you decided right then and there, this is going to be good for me because the source of it is good. And therefore the ending of it must be good. And there's nothing in the deal that said it's going to be painless. And if you go to anyone who achieves anything, a master of anything, whether it's Kung Fu, whether it's law school, whether it's the military, whether it's an artist, they're supposed to create beauty, whether it's marriage, They'll all tell you nobody said it was going to be easy. And they'll all tell you no pain, no gain. Yeah. So painlessness is not part of the deal in anywhere in the universe. And not neither with Allah either. So, any final words real quick? Yeah, just just Alex? briefly. Save people like Ustad Hamza a lot of work in the future. If you are a parent of young children or about to have children or plan to have children in the future, raise them with love and compassion and structure and discipline mm. and teach them about the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa so that when they get older they won't have the problems that people like like Ustad Hamza are trying to address right wow. so say, save people who are doing good work don't yeah. add more work to them and, and, those, uh, and do yeah. it by raising your children according to the prophetic model mm-hmm. not don't focus on just achievement in this life yeah. when they're little they believe everything you tell them so mm-hmm. tell them the good stuff Tell and, them about Allah's messenger. And he said to Salam, tell them about Allah. Nice. Explain mm-hmm. to them this. And the other thing I'll leave is uh, go out and look up uh, the literary and linguistic excellence of the Quran and read it. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, it's and that is hopefully you do that. when If there's a problem with kids and their parents, they will turn to Allah to complain about you. They won't go somewhere yeah. else. And yes. that's a victory. If your kids go and look up the books of Islam and the sunnah behavior of the prophet, well, you're not behaving like this. And, and well, that's terrible in itself. But at, I'll take that over some kid who's like runs away or, or becomes in, you know, finds a community on the Internet, because at least he's 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 turning to Allah and his messenger in the dispute. You will always have a good result if that's the case. SubhanAllah. Final words, Naz or Moeen? No, no. I mean, other than this was a beautiful discussion, I would definitely want to give thanks to, you know, Ustad Hamza. This was, uh, uh, it's always, uh, I've always wanted to meet you. So I'm, I'm really uh, happy that I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, speak with you. Alhamdulillah, this was a great uh, discussion. If you're ever in the New Jersey area, we would love to, you know, host you. I think you need to move to New Jersey. You fit right in. You fit right in. <laughs> That's true. You would. You would. <laughs> yeah. I think UK is much more exciting than New Jersey. Let's yeah, probably for the uh, yeah. Muslims seem probably yeah. yeah. Naz, anything else? 
Uh, I just wanted to thank you again, uh, Brother Hamza. We grew up watching you. So, I mean, the work that you've done is, is certainly having an impact in ways that you can't Absolutely. even imagine. Oh, definitely is. It's um, having such yeah. an impact. I just, I just wanted to end with, uh, can I read like a small passage from Nursi? Yes, yeah, sure. Summarizes. So Nas, is, Nas is Sunnah is he has to read something from Nursi every podcast. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love Sayyid Nursi um, uh, particularly because, you know, he had a very difficult life and he exemplified what could be achieved if we worshipped Allah and have that relationship with him. So, so he wrote this um, when he was exiled from Turkey and he was in the middle of nowhere in like uh, in a hut somewhere and basically all of his family members, most of them were dead, most of his friends were dead. Uh, so he describes this loneliness that he, that he feels. Um, so he says, uh, at most a visitor drops by once every 15 or 20 days. Otherwise I'm alone. In addition, it's been 20 days since the mountaineers of the area. At this time of night in these forsaken mountains, silent and amidst the trees, sorrowful sounds, I find myself immersed in five sorts of loneliness. Being old, I'm separated from most of my contemporaries, friends and relatives who have gone to the hereafter and left me in a most wretched isolation. This loneliness makes me feel a second type of separation coming from the disappearance of most creatures with which I feel a connection. This loneliness arouses yet another feeling that of separation caused by being far from my hometown and relatives. In addition to these, the mountain's dark landscape makes me feel a fourth kind of separation. Lastly, I've seen my soul in complete separation during its journey to eternity from this guest house, the world. I, uh, I screamed all of a sudden, glory be to God, wondering how I could endure such separations. Uh, and at just that point, belief's light, the Quran's effusive grace and the all merciful favor came to my aid and changed five kinds of separation into five circles of warm companionship. As I recited, God is sufficient for us and an excellent guardian is he. My heart recited, if they turn their backs, and another ayah from the Quran, if they turn their backs, say, God is enough for me. There is no God but he. In him I have put my trust. He is the Lord of the mighty throne. And then he ends, upon this my soul conceded that people can open the door to light by understanding their helplessness and poverty before God's power and riches, and by trusting and seeking refuge in him. I therefore praised and thanked God for the light of belief and submission. I came to understand how sublime a truth is contained in the couplet in Ibn Ataullah Askandari's wise saying, what has he found who has lost God? And what has he lost who has found God? So that's, that's one of uh, Nursi's letters. That's beautiful. Alhamdulillah, it's really, really powerful. Said Hamza, final comment. Yeah, that was uh, quite moving. All right, let's. Uh, we can wrap it up right here. Jazakumullah khairan. And I think you know probably not going to be the last time, right? Since I think we jived yeah, really well, uh, I think we could do this more often. Bismillah. May Allah bless you all. Jazakallah for the opportunity. Don't forget to send me your postal address. I'll send you a couple of boxes of the revised oh, edition. Definitely. Inshallah. May Allah bless you all. I mean, likewise. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Shadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk wal asr. Inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa amiru salihat. Wa tawasaw bil-haq. Wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum. Bye. 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 Bye.